This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Got a lot to, to talk about today. We Today, by the way, National Meatball Day. You got you to gotta love the meatball. Ah, I love. You know what? The Italians got it right. When, they, when, they, when it comes to choosing and creating a cuisine, they nailed it. You're a fan of the bald meat? Mm-hmm. That somebody mushed together with their two hands? <laughs> their two little meatball mashing hands. Yes. This, of course, would be a Greek meatball song. This is a Greek meatball song. When you, when you get, like, spaghetti and meatballs, do you like having the one huge meatball, or do you like having the small ones? No, I like ones? smaller okay. ones. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't want to have to cut much work. into it. It's too mm-hmm. much work. You just want to pop it in your mouth. They give you, like, the meatloaf meatball, and you're like, what are yeah. you doing? I wanted little meatballs. Come on. <laughs> How am I supposed to eat this? There, uh, there's a restaurant in New York that has 54 different kinds of meatballs. Not only do meatballs allow for variety, they move from appetizer to side dish to main dish quite easily. Meatballs can be made uh, the night before and put in a crock pot. Yes. They can be kept in the freezer. Mm. Meatball, the perfect the, the perfect uh perfect meat form. Form. What about balls versus loaves? I'll take either. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to discriminate. And I um this is a lot of meat discussion. Here. It is a lot of meatball discussion. It's because it's National Meatball Day. We always celebrate that on March 9th. Popcorn Lovers Day as well. Yeah, right there. <laughs> Jeffrey just pulled something. I heard something pop. Uh, Popcorn Lovers Day. It's also Panic Day. This is the day your chance. Oh, there he goes. It's the day you get to push your panic button. If you want to, if you want to panic about something, today's the day you do it. You know that paper you've got to turn in if you're in stu- in school. Mm. The report. Those taxes that are due yeah. very soon. The zombie apocalypse. The zombie apocalypse. Absolutely. The neighbors. You know, lighting off fireworks by the propane tank. Panic. It's all good. It's all good. Today, also, we're going to be talking about literacy lessons for the dig- for digital citizens. We live in a day and age where it's not enough to just necessarily even trust what you're hearing in the news or trust what you're seeing online. Now you got to be literate enough to know, eh, that's kind of fake news. Well, and since the election, even the definition of fake news has kind of changed depending on where you get your news. Absolutely. Like uh, Kellyanne Conway. Right. Is it fake news? Is it real news? Fake news. Don't know. You don't know. So you have to discern. You got to know the sources it's coming from. You got to be able to read into it. Is this a paid advertisement? Will that will that cream that you get to put under your eyes really make the bags go away? It'd be interesting with this gentleman coming up. How do they keep bias out of the course? You can't. Right? How do you keep from giving more of a liberal lean or a conservative lean? How do you just try to stay in the middle so that people can make their own yeah. decisions but not? Well, the big bias may be the belief that you're unbiased, right? And right. the media, they're all into doing that. And so, by the way, are, is science. 
Yes. We always say that scientists and medical you know, specialists are so objective. They're not. Everyone has a bias. Yeah. A surgeon using... has a bias towards surgery. Let's, let's cut it out. A radiologist would say, no, 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 let's just – we can just burn it out. We'll nuke it out. Right. Right? Everyone's got their specialty. <sighs> then there's some that will just herb it out. They'll just use herbs. Everyone's got a way to get it out. You mean like basil or – Yeah, a little basil. OK. Oregano. Is that an herb? Yeah. Feels like it. We, uh, we're going to get to My all that. My cousin. It, it feels like it. Feels like it. I've got a cousin. No, you don't. Named Herb. Oh, you do? Well, it's her. Oh, I think but... I met him. Good guy. Savory. <laughs> um, we've got a uh, – we're going we're gonna to get into all of that about the digital lessons with a, a professor that teaches courses on this subject. And really, they're probably they're, – similar courses should be taught to every, I think, 12-year-old up. Probably even younger than that. What are the li- what's the likelihood of that ever happening? Oh, about two percent. Okay, I think I think within twenty years it'll be happening a lot. Would this kind of class be as con- could it get as controversial as like sex education when it comes to how we do it? When it, yeah, you know, like you sure. see state legislators that are they're trying to figure out how we we teach you know this health type topics to kids. Yeah, well, this is kind of a similar sort of toxic topic. You would think. You would think. But it seems like you could still pretty make it you, – you could make it gen, or, uh, so general that like it's just – it's about applying how to make sure you know if it's a real uh, um, news like, – like Wikipedia sourced versus um, – because anybody could put anything on Wikipedia. Right. Versus I have. the New York Times. If if an institution's been around for hundreds of years, it tells you something. It doesn't tell you some, it doesn't tell you it's true. Some people in powerful positions call that fake news. Exactly. How do we know? Exactly. So, but <laughs> all you have to do is just say, well, they've been around for two hundred years yeah. and are seen as news leaders versus these people that you know do it out of the back of a van. Wrong. Allegedly. Yeah. But it's real fun. And it looks great. Oh, it does. So there's got to be some standard, right? We'll, we'll, we'll have to yeah. find out how he does it. Uh, we'll get to all that fun. But first, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What's going on around the rest of the country? About 4.30 a.m. Eastern this morning, the House Ways and Means Committee approved the American Health Care Act, the GOP's replacement for the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, on a 23-16 party line vote. The markup session began Wednesday at 10.30 a.m., And the other House committee with jurisdiction over the legislation, the Energy and Commerce Committee, is still debating the bill. You ever been in an 18-hour meeting? Uh, No. Okay. Feels horrible. How productive do you think the 18-hour meeting was? Not very productive. I think there was a lot of stuff happening to kind of slow up the, gum up the works a little bit. Once both committees approve the bill, it will go to debate before the full House. The GOP leaders unveiled the bill on Monday night. Democrats objected to marking up the bill with a score of how much it would cost and how many people would insure from the Congressional Budget Office. They uh, they avoided sending it to that office so those details wouldn't be immediately available so they yeah. could discuss it, is what they said. The bill also faces opposition from major medical groups, AARP and conservative lawmakers, who argue that it's too similar to Obamacare and are demanding a full repeal. President Trump strongly backs the bill, vowed to push it through. The Democrats made the Energy and Commerce Committee last night read the entire bill 
word for word. But it's, it's only 60 pages. Yeah. Fine. There's, there's, fine. They're now adding amendments. Yeah. Well, the, we'll what's see where go- that goes. Apparently, there's really three bills, and this is the first part of it. At the next stage, they'll add a lot more. Oh, nice. And this is where it gets crazy. And then yeah. the next stage, they add more. And then they got to add a budget to it. And yeah. then that's where it's all going to get cuckoo. And that's when we see the the Sean Spicer with his small stack of papers and the tall yeah. stack of papers. Now, a small stack gets thicker. Stack's going to get thicker. So, there you go. John Huntsman, the former Republican governor of Utah, 2012 presidential candidate, has accepted presidential President Trump's offer to become ambassador to Russia. Person close to the uh, close to Huntsman told NBC News Wednesday night he has served as ambassador before to, in Singapore under George H. W. Bush and to China under Barack Obama. Federal intelligence and law enforcement officials reportedly knew in 2016 that there had been a security breach at the CIA, which this week led to WikiLeaks to publish genuine CIA documents online. Reuters reported Wednesday, WikiLeaks on Tuesday published 8,000 pages of internal CIA documents about the agency's hacking techniques. Investigators concluded a review of the leak and are they're conducting a review of the leak and are currently looking into the possibility that an employee or contractor for the agency was the source of the hacked material. In those reports, it says they can turn your phone on or your TV on and record you depending on the brand and what technology you have. That has people spooked. I don't think it's... I mean, if you're yeah. a target. Right. I mean, if they want to listen to me yell at the TV, I guess that's... Do what you want. Yeah. And finally, Jimmy Fallon is reportedly under pressure to take The Tonight Show in a more political direction in an effort to regain his late-night ratings crown from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, which just won its fifth straight week in overall viewers. The New York Post quotes a source saying that Fallon has to figure out a way to get Trump into his routine because he's too weak on Trump and viewers are going elsewhere. He's been uncomfortable talking about politics, and that's not what people want. Fallon's situation is complicated by the fact that many observers feel that he helped normalize the Trump candidacy. Fallon had the last late-night interview with Trump before the election and failed to press Trump on any of the real issues, even though he knew millions would be watching. Instead, Fallon played an interview for laughs and even messed up Trump's hair. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's Jimmy Fallon's fault. This is crazy. Yeah, so he's being uh, told to change everything up and... Yeah, because that's what we need is more political talk. He's the one that got that's him crazy. elected. Who wants that? Do people want that? NBC wants the ratings back. Yeah, but... <laughs> so they're trying to do what they need to do. The, what's funny is in going for the ratings, they might not get the ratings back. I mean, the reason the ratings left is because they went to a major political... Um, Comedian. Yeah. I mean, the ratings went to the guy that right. is the best it's at not, political comedy. It's not Fallon's strong suit. Right. Yeah. So I don't, boy. And we're do you talking, try to move him, The ratings just... are like 3 million watching The Late Show and 2.92 million watching Fallon. Right. Fallon still leads, and what, 18 to 45 is a big demographic they shoot for? He mm-hmm. still leads there, but they keep seeing this trend of him dropping and yeah. Colbert climbing, and that that's big money. So. Oh, sure. Let's give Conan O'Brien a call. I'm sure he'll be eager Conan to come back. He's lost on TBS. <laughs> We're like, where's that? Is that where he is? Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, – there's there's half the country that would still probably watch Fallon. I mean, not half the country, but 2.8 million versus 3 million. Right. And is this Trump thing going to continue at this pace forever? He's 48 days or whatever into his presidency. Are people not going to be burned out by the first 100 days? 
then would they not swing back to Fallon? Who knows? I don't know. And what about YouTube numbers? Jimmy Fallon generally has better YouTube numbers. He's killing it. I don't know. And you, I get YouTube it. YouTube doesn't sell much. Right. But and that's what they're looking at is the money. Stephen Colbert's routines are not going now. to be as watched as Jimmy Fallon's ultimately. I think if they want Fallon's ratings to go up, they've got to get rid of that fake laugh that he does. Yes. He does that fake he laugh. He laughs way too much. But it's because he's kind of a pleaser. He pleases all of his guests, but sometimes the laughing seems fake. You fix that, you're up 200,000. You're even. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, fix it. I'm a highly trained professional. Yeah, fake laughter. People can see that. Because, I mean, it's if you watch sitcoms and they have a laugh track, Yeah. many times you're just sitting there and they're laughing and you're just sitting there because it wasn't our, funny. Our people, we never have to use fake laugh. We just have a great audience every day. You can tell a fake laugh a mile away. Don't trust a fake laugh, right? Mm. Don't trust it. That's what grandma used to say. <laughs> she really did. Ah, so much to get into. Wow. I mean, really, I think I'm, I'm tired personally of talking about Trump, so I'm assuming others are tired of talking about it. I think you're right. I think it's just going to wear off. People will go back to Jimmy. Yeah. So, Jimmy, hold your line. Don't don't just – don't do what everyone else says you should do. And his routines are more what we like to call here evergreen, meaning that people will continue to rewatch them on YouTube. Right. And, you know, Stephen Colbert's are all going to be so time sensitive yeah. that they won't be rewatched. They'll be funny for a while and – Everybody that's hoping that Trump will be impeached, I guess, will jump on the bandwagon. But, you know, I think there's still half the country that don't want to go there. Yeah. And I think the reason so many people watch Jimmy Fallon and like Jimmy Fallon is because he provides us with just these mindless games (laughs) and songs, things that are just fun that I think is what people really want. That's it. They want an escape from all this stuff. That's right. That's right. Just pick up your co- your comedic side. That's all you got to pick up. Oh, I wish we had one of those. If only we had a comedic side. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about literacy lessons for digital citizens. All this fake news, how do you cut through it? What are the lessons you need to know to cut through and understand... What's real, what's not when it comes to media? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, getting you ready for life. It's becoming more difficult to distinguish fact from fiction in the media. So the University of Hong Kong and State University of New York teamed up to create an online program. This online course helps anyone with an interest learn how to detect fake news and media bias. Here with us today is one of the course professors and assistant director of the Center for News Literacy at Stony Brook University of Journalism, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Anzalone. Jonathan, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. This uh, boy, I mean, it's amazing how quickly it seems like the term um, fake news you know, rose and has become this this issue. I mean, how long have we been struggling with, 
you know, discerning and understanding what's real news, what's not. Is this a new thing? It's uh, it's not a new thing, though it, the problem is, is growing worse. Um, one example we, we point students to is back in 1835, uh, a New York newspaper reported that life was found on the moon. Um, it turned out to be uh, satirical, mm. um, and it's been known as the Great Moon Hoax. <laughs> and, of course, we've had these supermarket tabloids for many years about bat boys and Hillary Clinton adopting alien babies. Uh, but the problem is, is growing worse because, uh, because it's so much easier to produce and to distribute it and to share it. And also, since so many people are getting their news from social media, it's growing harder to distinguish between what is real and what is fake. When this course started, uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, fake news described what The Daily Show did and what uh, right. Colbert did. And now it's this whole new thing of uh, false information that masquerades as news with the intent uh, to fool us. So it's, it's taking on new meaning. Give us an example of fake news um, seem that, we, that we believed was real uh, in the last six months. In the last six months, um, well, the uh, the the uh, mosque shooting in Quebec. Uh, usually, when there's uh, a breaking news story, there's there there's always a lot of confusion. It's the fog of breaking news, where information is coming in fast from a variety of sources. And in the aftermath of that event, a fake Twitter account that mimicked the Reuters, the the wire services mm. Twitter account, reported that. Two men had been arrested, two white supremacists, and actually named them. And uh, a, a news website called The Daily Beast found that Twitter feed and reported that as fact, not realizing that it was actually a fake account. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's even difficult for the professionals to tell the difference sometimes. And then if they, yeah, and then if another, you know, major news agency reiterates that same fact, then um, then it can create, I guess, the, the, the pushback that we're hearing from President Trump about fake news. And I mean, because some of it's fake news, some of it's it, it, it goes so many different directions, which is, I guess, why we need a, a, a class or some training on it, because sometimes it's just misreporting. It's it's a mistake. It's misciting. It's there's right. a lot of other things involved, right? That's a, a, absolutely right. And that's why there's an added pressure now on journalists to get their facts right. Uh, they're, they're, they're human, everyone makes mistakes, and there have always been uh, corrections. You know, we misspelled this name, or something as uh, even bigger than that, like when Congresswoman Gabby Giffords was, was shot and NPR reported that she had died. Uh, you, there has always been a need for corrections. But there's even greater pressure now on journalists to get the facts right so that they don't become uh, caricatured as fake news. Mm. Because that, that's the, the term, maybe it's losing its value, fake news, if it ever had any value, because it's become a synonym for news I don't want to hear. Mm. If, if it's someone in power, uh, president, governor, senator, a CEO of a company, I just read a story yesterday about someone in the education department dismissing student journalist work as fake news. So it's become this broad brush, 
to dismiss information that uh, people, especially those in power, don't want others to know. Right. And then, yeah, once you once we start and, and there's this push on the media now that we're characterizing them and they're turning into some cartoon um, instead of the people we could trust. I guess back in Cronkite's day, you would turn to Cronkite and you could just uh, trust him or a majority of people could trust that his intention was at least to inform accurately. Um, is is this is is it changing what you're teaching uh, the journalists today. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely, it is. When uh, when news literacy began, really our top priority was helping students distinguish good journalism from bad journalism. Uh, the th- there were some things we taught them about, like video news releases that were kind of ads disguised as news. Uh, but really, the the main issue was journalists doing their job right and doing it poorly, what's getting the best information. But now it's so much more confusing. Now there's sponsored content, these ads that are dressed up as news, and sometimes the label is very small and we can't tell the difference. Um, there's, there's fake news. And this question of who is a journalist is, uh, is growing more complicated as well. So we, we try to instill in in students the idea that journalism on one hand, yes, it's a profession, but it's also an activity that even the professionals can't do. And so we try to instill in them a sense of core values, uh, particularly verification, providing some evidence and talking to the right sources, uh, maintaining some measure of independence from what they're covering. It's someone posting a video on YouTube of their parents' birthday party. They wouldn't be independent in, in, that, in that scenario. Right. And, and also being accountable, as we've talked about, the need to correct errors and, all, and take responsibility for their work. So we hope students stay true to those three core values. And even if uh, a lot of our students in news literacy are not journalism majors, usually it's about a breakdown of 50-50 here at Stony Brook. And so we even teach non-journalism majors who are not interested in this as a profession to, if they, are, if they see something newsworthy as they're walking down the street, a, mm. a car crash or something, those three core values should still apply if they're just sharing it on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it seems like this course on literacy um, for digital set, uh, citizens should be a general ed class for everybody at the university. Yeah, it, uh, it, it isn't required for everyone yet. We, we, we tried to do that, but it, do, it does satisfy some, uh, some general education requirements. And, yeah, some of our most engaged students have been biology majors and non-journalism majors. And uh, we've even converted a few uh, into future journalists, not, not our intent. But yeah. our, our focus in, in news literacy is really on the consumption side. You, you want to be an active, engaged, informed citizen, then news literacy is the, is the course for you because it's about getting the most reliable information so that you know whom to vote for, who is the best candidate, uh, you know who, whom to trust. Hmm. And have, have you thought yet uh, in this program about offering or opening it up to just citizens everywhere? That we've, we've been having those conversations. Uh, there are some you know, uh, practical barriers. We right. have 
uh, you know, we, we, ha we have a small staff, and when we try to uh, communicate with uh, school systems and education departments, there's, there's always a bureaucracy there. Um, but we have made inroads in a few places. We work with a, uh, a middle school in Coney Island, IS-303, and all, all of their students, uh, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, uh, every year of their education there, they get uh, a class in news literacy. We work with a few uh, local high schools uh, here on Long Island, uh, and their teachers teach news literacy as part of a, a government requirement. Because I think, uh, as I noted earlier, this, th these kinds of lessons are essential for, uh, for civic engagement, for practicing citizenship. So yeah, I agree, and I understand why um, California is considering passing a law that would require all students re to require some basic education in, in being able to spot fake news and debunk it. Yeah. And you, um, I mean, it really is, it's, it's kind of a neat uh, approach because we are becoming consumers. We live in a world, though, too, where just simply having a Twitter feed now makes you a distributor, too, right? And you can build an audience, and then all of a sudden you become an editor, um, and you could very quickly make a mistake in, you know, in, um, in supporting, promoting, or either sponsored content that is really more of a commercial or false news or fake news that's intentionally trying to sway somebody and, and, and actually send your own audience to the wrong place. That, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, a recent study I saw found that 59% of people on Twitter who share links retweet things don't even read what they're retweeting. Oh, boy. So, so there's a there's a something negative right off the bat and but you're abs absolutely right and we also have to contend with the fact that once the uh to quote winston churchill uh the uh, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets a chance to put its pants on <laughs> once the, once once the lie is out there it's hard for the truth to catch up even if a correction is issued that's right and, and the damage and, is done exactly and what you describe uh, with these kind of uh, bubbles that form on Twitter, on Facebook, and on social media in general, is that's one of the reasons, probably the main reason why fake news spreads, because some of this stuff seems so crazy, so outlandish, but if it's shared with, shared by someone, shared by a friend, then it's someone you trust. Right. And it's also someone who probably shares the same political beliefs, and so they, it becomes preaching to the choir. And, the, and within these echo chambers, misinformation spreads and it's reinforced over and over again. With your bias, especially if you have like a, a major bias behind it or a fear bias behind it. I mean, I, I see – I protect my own Twitter and Facebook feeds. I protect them professionally because they become, you know, your source of revenue, your reputation's on the line. I'm not even doing it as a journalist, but I've studied as a journalist, and yet I, um, I could see how just in a fanatical, you know, read, somebody could feel something so strongly that they send it out. And again, they may not have a lot of people, but mm -hmm. continually reinforcing the same misinformation makes it seem real. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's a line in a uh, uh, in, 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 in a poem by the, the author of Alice in Wonderland, what I tell you three times is true. <laughs> and, and there is some actual scientific research to back this up. And, and that's why uh, political candidates spend so much money on campaign ads. Uh, not, I mean, we all get sick of them, but if we hear things over and over again, it sinks in and we forget where it came from. And then we may end up even attributing what we learned from a campaign ad to a more reliable source. Uh, so absolutely, the, uh, there's a two things to highlight. Two things you mentioned. There's this powerful impulse for confirmation bias, right? Where we want to seek out information that we expect to confirm our beliefs instead of challenging ourselves. And also, there's this uh, this this issue of, and, and there's this question around fact checking. Uh, even if you fact check a lie, you have to repeat that lie. And is that even further reinforcing Sure. Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah. We're hearing it again and again. It's true. And, and yeah, just to even clarify it, you bring up all the questions again. Absolutely. Oh, that's harsh. To get back to one of, one of your points is that's why we think it's growing increasingly important to uh, introduce people to news literacy much younger. Yeah. Um, we, it, we're, we're doing our best to scale, scale it up with this online course, though this is intended for adults, and we have uh, a foothold in a few high schools and middle schools, as I mentioned. Uh, but I think the, the need for this, and especially for students at a young age before, before their beliefs become calcified and and before they're less willing to open up to new possibilities and change. I gave a uh, presentation to our uh, middle school teachers in Coney Island a few months ago, and one of the teachers raised their hand, and she said, my students already think the, the moon landing was faked. What do I do? <laughs> so, uh, so I think, yeah, getting uh, at least introducing them and, and maybe inoculating them to misinformation and disinformation early is uh, is the way to go. I love I love the idea. Let's take a break, Jonathan. When we come back, I want to have you get into the content. What should we just as consumers teach us uh, some of the the important lessons that you teach in this class? Jonathan Anzalone is joining us. He is a professor at uh, Stony Brook University of Journalism and uh, put together a class on literacy lessons for digital citizens. We'll be learning up next. Stick with us. We are talking with uh, Dr. Jonathan Anzalone. He is a uh, professor and assistant director of the Center for News Literacy at Stony Brook University of Journalism. And together with, um, I believe it was uh, um, University of Hong Kong, they put together a program, Literacy Lessons for Digital Citizens, uh, a, a course for students where they can learn how to be, I guess, in, how to intelligently manage and handle uh, the digital world. Is that accurate, Jonathan? How would you describe the class? 
yeah, you're uh, you're you're on target there. Uh, we define news literacy at its most basic as simply using critical thinking skills to determine the reliability and credibility of news reports. There's this bigger field of media literacy, but we just focus on uh, the news media in particular. And yeah, our goal is to give people not just you know, practical tips, though those are important, not just practical tips to spot what's real and what's fake, but also these kind of uh, these these basic principles that can even be applied in their history classes, science classes about what information is best for them. That's great. I mean, because yeah, we all have we also even just have different styles. We like to take data in. It's funny. I um, I love articles, but I to read them on these new devices. It, it, to me, it's just so tedious. So I I actually listen. Um, mm-hmm. to the to the, the information. So even when I was listening to some of your stuff, Jonathan, you sounded like Siri to me. Um, <laughs> but it's it's interesting. But I like taking it in through my ears. Um, so I guess part of it is knowing what we like and then knowing how to discern. Go through the curriculum that you have for the class. What what do the students receive? What what are they what are they learning? Sure. Um, we've had uh, about 2,600 students take the online course so far, and what, and what they're getting is that every week there's a series of, of video lessons, uh, which we have, a, we have a talking head, but also some animation and quizzes built in to every, uh, to every video, to, so it pauses every once in a while and asks you about what you just saw. Uh, we have recommended resources, some readings and videos for students to watch, discussion boards for them to chime in with their own thoughts, and then quizzes and exercises at the end of every, every module. So what we do is we start off uh, by simply defining the problem, why they're here, why news literacy matters, and why it matters now more than ever with this, uh, with this information overload that can threaten to uh, drown us in information so that we shut down. The fact that uh, there's this crisis of authenticity where we don't know what's real and what's fake. There's a blurring of the lines where it's hard to tell journalism from other kinds of information. And then there's this challenge of overcoming our own bias. So we have video lessons on, on these and then chances for students to interact. Uh, and then we define for students why information is so important to begin with, historically speaking, and particularly today, how it can topple governments and cause uh, widespread social change. And when it's based on facts, we argue uh, that information is even more powerful. And so it's about giving students uh, a sense of why this matters and also giving them the lay of the land. Here are the challenges we face today. Here, uh, here's what's different in terms of social media and other avenues for learning information today. It seems like this crisis of authenticity uh, with President Trump, it, it becomes an issue almost daily, uh, even recently this the whole allegation about being wiretapped by the um by president obama um and not necessarily citing a real source but he was actually for it seems like for the first time the president was citing public information not necessarily private information is 
do, do you sense that um, President Trump has put this at a whole other level? I think so. Um, just judging by the amount of uh, interest we've received in the last several months uh, uh, from news outlets uh, wanting to know what, what what is this fake news thing and why is it a problem now? What can we do about it? Absolutely. I think because we, we teach students that if they're following the news, uh, the best source is an authoritative one, someone who is in a position to know. And, you know, in most cases, the authoritative source would be the president who right. has access, access to the best experts who can, uh, on a second, say, hey, I, I want to know about that. And the best people will call them or, or give them a report. Uh, but now there is uh, a president very active on this new medium, so, uh, social media, sharing what it seems he learned from uh, learned from Breitbart or Fox News or, or talk radio. Uh, so he's getting second, third hand or even worse information instead of uh, instead of direct evidence. So it, it is a it is a greater challenge as an academic. Teach us what's the difference and why does it matter if if President Trump says, well, I'm just understating my sources just like you do. It's not a big deal. There's not a difference. But is there a difference um, between a journalist's approach and and need and and goal versus a president's goal? Uh, Sure. We we also teach students to be cautious about self-interested sources. And so uh, a president or uh, somebody in a position of power has a great deal of self-interest with how they are perceived, with their popularity with uh, catering to uh, a set of followers. And so uh, our hope is that a journalist guided by professional ethics is informing the public and doing what's in the public good. Uh, we'd hope that as a president as well, but there's also underneath that this, uh, this, this self-interest that, that mot- uh, motivates all politicians to at least stretch the truth. And, and and some to outright fabricate information. Would you, would you, uh, if you were asked to advise the media, what would what advice would you give them? Because many are blaming the media for creating Donald Trump and and playing to the furor of Trump through mm-hmm. the election. Um, but they were also, it seemed like, the arguments where they were the ratings were outrageous. They were huge. It didn't matter what he did; he got attention. Then it seems like the media kind of turns on him uh, once he becomes president. What, what, what advice would you give the media for handling President Trump now, who he is who he is. He does, he does it the way he does it. He's going to stay online. He's going to make, you know, maybe unsubstantiated uh, um, assessments and, and statements. But what would you be advising the media to do with a President Trump right now as a journalist, right. as a teacher and a professor? Uh, the first thing I would say is is stop waiting for the so-called pivot. Um, you know, there's all this expectation that he's going to pivot to a new tone or right. pivot to this. That a lot of that conversation followed his uh, uh, address to Congress. This, it's the new Trump. He's presidential. Yeah, they were all excited about it. Yeah, right. This is the pivot, um, and then the the tweets about Obama allegedly wiretapping him, and then criticizing Arnold Schwarzenegger. Again, those, 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 those tweets soon followed. So um, I would say you, you know who he is. 
Um, and I would say that the, the tools that journalists have and the ethics that journalists have had for you know, at least the last 60 years will serve them well now. Don't, uh, I mean, journalists, have their first obligation is always to the truth. So keep that above, above all else. And you, you rightly note that there is this tension that our independent, uh, ind- independent news media is also profit-driven, right? That, that's, right. That's, that's the trade-off. And so, yeah, I understand that um, he, gets, he gets ratings and he gets attention, but we also have to balance that with, with newsworthiness and also and not cover every tweet. Right. Um, in fact, that's a discussion I'm going to have with my students in a couple weeks uh, where we're going to start off with this example of when Meryl Streep gave her Golden Globe speech that didn't name uh, Donald Trump, but was critical of him, and he responded with tweets. Uh-huh. I'm going to show show them a clip from MSNBC the following morning, where there's a roundtable of people talking about that for six minutes. Mm. Uh, is is really is that really the most newsworthy thing? Yes, it is unusual for uh, a president to do that. But what is the president doing or saying? that is actually affecting people's lives directly. And I would, so I would say keep, the, keep their obligation to the truth always in mind, but also keep in mind their obligation to their audience. Is this serving them? Yeah, that's good. And I mean, I guess that's it. Is, and that's one of the things that President Trump is the master of is kind of the distraction and then the, the, uh, the switcheroo. But one I, one of the one of the benefits would be if the media didn't take the bait, if they just didn't take the bait. Well, Jonathan, I I appreciate your insight. This is great stuff, and um, I look forward to the day that we're offering it nationwide. I'd love to get my kids in that class as soon as I can, and if we could do it all online, that would be a whole different game. We're going to have you back, Jonathan, to keep this discussion going. How to maintain uh, literacy, especially with the news. It's discerning the fake news, powerful stuff. It uh, it allows us to be leaders of our own lives. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, imagine you you get up in the morning, you take you fill your tub with water. You're so excited to just go soak as you get ready for work, and uh, you go to get in the tub, and your tub is pink. The water in the tub is pink. Well, residents of a town in Canada saw something surprising drip out of their tap water faucets this week. Pink water, like. Not good. That can't be good. Right. It's somebody killed Barney and he's just leeching out into the water. Residents in Canada, in Onaway, Alberta, Canada, found their tap water tinged with a pink color starting on Monday. Town resident Vicki um, Van Zatten first noticed the change in her water once a neighbor called her to ask about it. Hey, Vicki, have you seen this water? This nasty pink water. Her daughter called from the bathroom to let her know that their water had turned pink. 
Once she posted the town's Facebook, posted on the Facebook page, citizens expressed concern and outrage over the changes. It is bright pink. And uh, would you get in it? No, especially because I've seen the film Ghostbusters 2. Ooh, do they have pink water? They have pink ooze that is – it's got some supernatural – it's basically – I don't know if you call it possessed. Yeah. But uh, – It's possessed ooze. And there's a scene when Sigourney Weaver is about to take a bath and pink water starts coming out of the drain. Well, what if, what if the people said, no, 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 you're fine. Just drink it. It's, it's, not, it's not bad. It, it's, we just made a change to the water treatment plant. It's called potassium permag- permagnate. It's just leaked into the system. It's not a big deal. Just go ahead and drink coconut it. Coconut water can be pink, too. Can it really? Was but it coconut water? Is it that pink? No. That's I mean, like... Mama taught me don't drink any blue water. Don't drink any yellow water. Don't drink any... That's like pink juice. Water. Yeah. It looks like Kool-Aid. It's fine. You're fine. I guess eventually it took it, it cleared out, but um, the the city officials are saying they wish they had done a better job communicating. You know, and now everybody, though they all look, they have that pinkish you know hue to their skin now. They look great. They look so healthy and vibrant. Anyway, so the people of Canada, you're okay. You can just drink it. It's just potassium pernagnanagnate. Well, if you turn into a Carpathian mass murderer. We know why. Like uh, Ghostbusters 2, then, yeah. Good stuff. Don't touch it. See, and you thought you had it bad? At least your water's not pink. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the show. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson. The party has begun. And, uh, of course, what we're celebrating is National Meatball Day. I love me a good meatball sandwich. See, that is the perfect mix. I even like me a meatball sandwich with pasta on the sandwich. That, really? It's, yeah. just, it's just a spaghetti and meatballs on bread, right? Have you ever have you ever done that? Well, yeah. You have? Sure. You put spaghetti? Yeah. See, I thought it was crazy. It was spaghetti with ketchup and chocolate chips, I believe. Spaghetti sandwich. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. You don't put... No. We just found stuff in the cupboard and started putting things on it. Where it was, were your parents? They were gone for the day. Holy cow. Yeah, I've never done that. I like me a sandwich with a little meatball and a little pasta, a little mm. spaghetti. Mm, I'm starving. Sounds like it. <sighs> we can't keep talking about National Meatball Day. Go get a Jersey Mike's. I'm going to... Sandwich am, in On Tampa. my way home, I'm going to go get me... I'm gonna go get me a meatball sandwich. Hey, didn't they? Didn't somebody used to say as a kid, wasn't hitting you a meatball something? No, that was a, a knuckle sandwich. Knuckle sandwich. Yeah. Those are good too. Those are good too. But only if you're on the giving end. I don't it's, think, it's better to give than the receive. That's right. Knuckles aren't as meaty as they used to be. <laughs> Actually, sadly, knuckles are meatier today than they used to be. Yes. <laughs> We're filling them right out now. It's also Popcorn Lovers Day. 
We're, that, we're, that was that was popcorn popping. Apparently, one, one kernel, one yep. kernel per hour. Hey, um, that's are you guys, all we have the budget for. Are you guys big into popcorn? Like, if you go to the theater, do you get popcorn? No. Every time. You do. Every time. You must be rich. No, I just get the bucket that you can get a free refill and you yeah, take it back the next time. I do that time. too. But then, because I have a big family, we just pass it around. But I don't put butter on it. I always do. No, because then my kids are a greasy mess. They're that. They're going to be a greasy mess no matter what you do. No, mine are older. They really shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, my kids know how to wash their hands now. Well, half of them. Um, it's also panic day, the day you're free to panic about it. Everyone's on edge. The meatball song still goes, though. Yeah. It's still, it's still, the Greek that meatball. Could, that could be reason to panic right there. This is, this sounds like a song that would be playing as you're panicking and in a hurry to get somewhere. Really? Yes. Like if you're in Italy? Yes. Panicking. We found out, I forever thought this song was a Greek song. Hmm. And uh, Don came in and clarified, no, it's uh, definitely Italian. Which, that applause is for me, by the way. Jeffrey Wright. Did we get a translation on the words? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in, in Italian. It says, I'm singing a song that sounds like a Greek song. Okay. Jeff was right. Jeff it's was right. That's good. Hey, today we're going to be talking about um, crunch time. How the, when the pressures of life start to just circle you? Yeah, wrong. That's yeah, wrong a wrong crunch. crunch. Yeah, yeah. That would be the wrong crunch. Oh, I mean, there's a right crunch. There's a wrong crunch. That's not a bad crunch. That's a great. Sounded great. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll be talking about when when the pressures start to hit you. How do you how do you not get sucked into it? Like, imagine being a major league pitcher, and you're now going to the World Series. And they depend on you to win your two games. Right. And you're the starting – you're going to be the first pitcher in game one. you got to win that game, and then we're going to need you to win game four. <sighs> I struck out to lose a game in Little League. I still remember it. Really? That's one of the few things I remember from my childhood, vividly. You might want to let that go. Oh, I've str- – yeah. I struck out. I also had a really incredible game-winning hit once that I remember. Hmm. And I think this guy's going to help you, Jeff, because he's going to help us understand how to reframe it. Was it on a Nintendo or something? No, this was in oh, real okay. life. I was, they called me Reggie. And See, there's a lot of examples, right? Yeah. You got – you're down by four touchdowns in the Super Bowl, but yeah. you rally. Rally back. You're down 3-1 in the NBA Finals, and you rally. What do these people do? Why don't they collapse and fall apart? No what? one thinks you're going to win the presidency, and you rally. You rally. Everybody thinks you're going to be impeached in the second week, and you rally. Everybody thinks you won Best Picture, and then the ref does uh, a review of the play, (laughs) and it was overturned. Rally. (laughs) Lots of of moments that could tear you apart. So how do you reframe it? We'll get into all of that fun, plus a lot of empty news today. A lot of empty news. Matt Townsend News. Um, maybe we could also go check on Schick's health. Schick, uh, Schick was involved in an accident. Schick Shumway, one of our roving reporters, known for roving, not reporting. And uh, he was involved in an accident. We'll just see if he's better. He had uh, his jaw wired shut. Great guy, Schick. Great guy. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's up? 
If the House Republicans' recently induced American Health Care Act doesn't work out, Representative Pete Sessions from Texas has another proposal in the works that he that he seems pretty uh, confident about. The bill introduced March 1st is modestly titled "World's Greatest Health Care Plan of 2017." Wow. The bill clarifies that you may call this bill by the lofty name that Sessions gave it. So just clarifying that. Sessions noted that he's been working on this plan with the health care providers and business owners for the last 18 months and promises on his website that it isn't full of erroneous regulations, unnecessary mandates, or disc- uh, discriminatory policies, and that it empowers all Americans to make their own health care choices. Sounds like the world's greatest. World's greatest health care plan of 2017. Watch for it. <laughs> if the current plan fails, which it might... Or it might not. Who right, knows? It's right. all up in the air. After WikiLeaks published a trove of documents this week that de- details the CIA's alleged hacking operations, CNN reports that a federal criminal inquiry has opened in coordination with the FBI and the CIA on the matter. The investigation will allegedly look into how the documents, which are were uh, evidently genuine, ended up in the hands of the organization. According to CNN's report, federal authorities believe they may have been leaked by an employee or a contractor working in the agency. It's unclear if WikiLeaks has any other unpublished published documents, but that is part of the coordinated review. We'll look into that. Wow, good stuff. Maybe they can get into your car and turn the microphones on in your car. Who knows? I bet they can. It's all connected. San Francisco has asked a federal judge to block President Trump's order threatening the uh, denial of federal funding to sanctuary cities that don't actively pursue undocumented immigrants. City authorities on Wednesday asked for the U.S. District Judge for a preliminary injunction against the president's executive order until a lawsuit can be heard. The city's motion argues that Trump's order infringes on the sovereignty of the cities and exceeds a presidential authority. The city warns that it could lose $1.2 billion in aid for social programs if Trump follows through with his threat. Authorities in San Francisco are prohibited from asking individuals who report crimes about their immigration status or detaining undocumented immigrants for their status during a minor crime. San Francisco is one of several local governments seeking to block Trump's order, which came out on January 25th. A hearing is set for April 5th. So we'll hear about that in a couple weeks. Um, and finally... Yes. Footage from Star Wars The Last Jedi has been shown to Disney shareholders at the company's annual meeting. Really? The LA Times reports that the footage shown at the meeting held at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver features the resolution to the cliffhanger at the end of The Force Awakens where the film's protagonist, Ray encounters Luke Skywalker at his secluded cliffside hiding place. Cliffhanger on a cliff. Rarely wow. happens. That's a double cliff. You remember, there's music, there's no words... But they do yeah. tell you Luke's first words when encountering young Hooray. That's got to be the best payday for Mark Hamill, to have no dialogue oh, yeah. in that screen time. What, what were the first words? You like, want to know? Sup. It's a spoiler. The, the first words to young who? Ray, the girl. Yeah, okay, Ray. Remember she hands yeah. him the lightsaber? Yeah, yeah. He says something. They don't have that at the end of uh, oh, I, Force I already Awakens. know the words. What is it? That thing's heavy. No. What do you think of my beard? That could be it. Do I look fat in this Wookiee outfit? He was wearing a Jedi robe with the hood. Okay. Do I look fat in this hood? Yeah. No, what is it? <laughs> Luke asks Ray, who are you? Wouldn't he know? <laughs> You're a Jedi for crying out loud. He's a Jedi. Loud. He would know. I think he'd have an idea. Luke. Maybe he was just, maybe he knew, but he just wanted to hear it from her. He wanted to see if she knew. Yeah. Smart guy. That guy's so, a Jedi. There's a, this whole buildup. They have all these shareholders in this meeting. 
They talk about some important things. They go after the the CEO for some things he did, and then they show this footage. They go, "We usually don't show footage. We're gonna give you we're gonna give you an insider track." So they showed his first words that are immediately after that scene at the end of of, of Force Awakens, and it's, "Who are you?" <laughs> By the way, that sounds like great acting, and I know J.J. Abrams has this campaign going to get Mark Hamill an Oscar nomination. Right. What's going to take this new movie? Don't you think it'll take better lines than that? <laughs> I hope. He's not winning with those lines. There's only ever been one Star Wars acting nomination. Who? Alec Guinness. Who? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh yeah. He was good. From the original, the original Star Obi-Wan Wars. Kenobi. I'm not going to say episode 4. I refuse yeah. to say that. It's like I refuse to say I want a chocolate uh, what are they called at Wendy's? Frosty. I don't. I don't have to ask for a, a chocolate frosty. It's just a frosty, okay, people. Good point. But they now have vanilla frosties. Yeah. Right. So I shouldn't have chocolate. to differentiate. If I just say frosty, it should just be known that I'm talking yeah. about a chocolate. You frosty. want the chocolate? If I say Star Wars, it should be known that I'm talking about Episode Four. Yeah. This is all true. Other wow. characters who appeared in the footage, including Chewbacca, yeah, Finn, who's played by John Boyega, and the late Carrie Fisher. She, uh, Fisher completed filming for The Last Jedi six months before her death in December. I like these young the young actors. Finn and the other woman. What's her name? Female? Finn, Poe, and Daisy Ray. Daisy Ridley is her name. They can't think they're of... They're great actors. They're all one-syllable names, too, by the way. Yeah. Well, Finn, Poe, Ray. It's all efficient. Finn, Poe, Ray. Finn, by the way, Poe, Ray. Great meal. Have you ever had Finn, Poe, Ray? Mm. Mm. Have not. <laughs> Yummy. Actually, I think it's uh, it's not pronounced Finn Poray. It's it's pronounced Fa Poray, Fa Poray. Yeah, my my wife told me about some great Fa that she had. The ends are like, silent. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Fa. <laughs> but then she got some and she liked it again. She goes, "Would you like some Fa?" And I go, "No, no it's fine. Appreciate way. it. Thank you." I'm not sure what that is. So many places we could take that, and none of them. Yeah. So we're just going to stop, is trouble, what you're saying. Trouble on the horizon. So, um, Florida man arrested after hitting a cop with gravel. Mm. And then of all things you could steal, what, what would be the most valuable thing you could steal? In a traffic stop? Yeah. Depends on what you're driving. How about yeah. a jar of peanut butter? Chunky or yeah. creamy? Yeah, this is true. I don't know if they, they address that in the story. A Northwest Florida man faces jail time for two unrelated incidents that involve assaulting an officer with gravel. That's the old gravel in the face thing, probably, huh? Mm. And stealing a jar of peanut butter. According to police, the 25-year-old man's arrest stems from a November incident when a female officer tried to pull him over for un, uh, over the unidentified suspect for not having working tail lights in his pickup truck. The man was slow to respond, but eventually pulled over in his gravel uh, in a gravel parking lot where he spun his truck around, throwing gravel up in the process. The suspect was later arrested. Officers learned earlier that month the man was accused of robbing another man at gunpoint, stealing his backpack that contained a peanut butter, a jar of peanut butter. Mm. Again, chunky or smooth? It's going to be smooth. Nobody would steal chunky. Is it one of those small jars or a, a large family size? Chunky peanut butter isn't yet peanut butter. Does it just contain mm. the peanuts or does it have all the preservatives in it? Oh, it's got it all. And it's got that little oil yeah. film at the top. Oh, so it's not the noster. No. Yeah. No. You got to get the noster. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, if you have to stir your peanut butter. I don't butter. want a chore. 
Yeah. Don't sell me a chore. Even Believe me, it's hard enough to just make a peanut butter sandwich. Or now they have the type they're just add water. They do? To make your peanut butter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we have that. But that's... Like, it seems like there's a lot of work to get to your peanut butter. Why not just have peanut butter? Just give me the peanut butter. Yeah. I remember the days uh, when I would just chew peanuts on my way to school. Right. And I noticed if I chewed them long enough, I had peanut butter. <laughs> it's amazing how that worked. Those were the days. I, I, I figured that out on my own as a kid. But isn't it easier where you just buy the jar? Oh, yeah. So, and essentially, it's like pre-chewed peanuts. I used to use peanut butter it's every gross. day after school. <laughs> My dog would meet me at the back door because he was so cute and loving, had his underbite and everything. Mm. And I, I, he'd lick on my face, and we'd just hug each other. And then I'd go right to the jar of peanut butter and stick my nasty little eight-year-old finger in that jar and get a big scoop of peanut butter and wipe it on the roof of my dog's mouth because I loved him. You're a monster. And then I'd just lick off the rest. Wow. We were very close that way. So old like- buddy. By the way, amazing thing, died of heart disease. No way. Yeah, he did. Totally huh. had heart disease. How'd don't know work? why. I don't know why. But you were an EMT. He had a bad diet, apparently. Did you resuscitate him? No, no, no. My mom actually had him assassinated. That's not the word she Whoa. uses. She used farm up north. She used yeah. euthanized. Oh, okay. So there was a sniper involved. No, yeah. She took him out when I was on my honeymoon, apparently. And the music ends. Whoa. True story. Not to throw my mom under the bus, but it's, you know, still going to therapy on that one. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to handle crunch time. When the pressure hits, how to stick into the moment and uh, and do your best. Pretty cool. Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Tuacon Amphitheater in Southern Utah presents country and adult contemporary crossover singer Martina McBride, March 17th. She's sold over 18 million albums in her career, and she's won Top Female Vocalist of the Year awards from the Country Music Association. Tickets are on sale now at tuacon.org. Tuacon Amphitheater. Expect the unforgettable. Broadhead for three. Every transition triple. Good. Rattles at home. Pause transition three. And he knocks it down. His first sound driving in. Off the glass. Bayo races past his man. Takes it in the lane. Right to the rim. Lays it up and in with a finger roll. TJ crossover on Erickson. Beat him. Gets it low. And Yoli throws it down. And one. From down low or way downtown, don't miss a minute of Cougar basketball action here on BYU Radio. BYU Sports Nation guys, the BYU store isn't the best place for tossing the football. You're taking a nap? Seriously? Okay, you can find plenty of general interest and religious books and a wide selection of treats. I'll admit, the cougar wear looks great on Spencer. We are live in the BYU store. Now this is your best idea. The BYU store, proud to sponsor BYU Sports Nation on BYU Radio and BYU TV. Hear what talent scout and music club owner Corey Fox says about living in Provo and Utah Valley. It's been great that bands like Neon Trees and Imagine Dragons have put a spotlight on Provo to show this great music scene, but the truth is it's always been here. 
A lot of people know me from opening Velour 10 years ago, but I started working in the local music scene in Provo 25 years ago. I actually do it in the town and community that I'm super passionate about. There's more to discover at visitprovo.org. Why the obsession with the future world? It, it was bright. It, it was a very positive view of it. And it was like, life is going to be so much better when we can get away from all of this organic, messy stuff and just have clean plastic wherever we look. <laughs> On our rock and roll show, Through the Garage Door, we not only take you to the past, we transport you to the future. Any band that wears plastic hair and flower pots on their heads deserves to be in the future. Make your future brighter by listening to Through the Garage Door, midnight Eastern on BYU Radio. You know, past New York Yankees manager and quasi-philosopher Yogi Berra once said that baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. Performing at a high level during critical times is a sign of a great athlete and also a great coach. Our next guest, Judd Hoekstra, co-wrote the book Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. He wrote it with Major League Baseball pitching coach Rick Peterson, and uh, it's going to help us understand how to handle it when times get tough. Uh, Judd, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is, a, I, I think, a really important uh uh, you know, thing to focus on. I, I'm starting a, a class with my own clients on anxiety and how to handle pressure. And boy, what better way to learn about it than Major League Baseball? Absolutely. It is uh, plenty of crunch time moments in Major League Baseball. And, you know, the, the, the solutions translate from the baseball field to our everyday lives. Like like just giving your first presentation, right, or having to turn in that report and uh, and then defend your views in, in a business meeting or something. I, I guess I guess the crunch time comes in many different ways. What got you of all the things you could write about? I mean, you're a you're work with a speaker's company and uh, with Ken Blanchard companies. What got you on this topic? Well, uh, I. This is a little embarrassing to share, but I'll I'll let you know that I've I've choked at crunch time moments throughout various points in my life, and I've had I've actually had a lot of success in sports growing up. Uh, I played baseball in college and hockey in college. Uh, done well in business, but there were times that you know I didn't come through in the clutch, and it was there's some of the more painful memories that I've that I've got actually, and so uh, then I actually was witness to one of my kids was struggling during a tryout period and thought, oh my gosh, it's happening again, and i got to find a solution to this problem, and, and then ended up uh, getting connected with Rick Peterson, the pitching coach who worked with the Oakland A's Moneyball teams and the New York Mets, and uh, I figured Rick would be the guy that would have answers because he's, as a pitching coach, you're responsible for going out to the mound and getting someone back on track, calming them down in 30 seconds or less, and he was known as a, a mental game guru, so it ended up being a he, you know, I was a student, and he was a teacher. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, really, like, anything more difficult than being, you know, a starting pitcher where in the World Series, and you gotta you got to bring your heat, and you're playing against the best team in the world, and then all of a sudden you have a bad inning. Boy, if you're not in control of the, that moment, it seems like it could all slide away. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was fortunate enough to do, you know, a number of interviews, over 50 interviews for the book, and got to interview a number of the 
people that I grew up watching in baseball, the, the Tom Glavins of the world and uh, Willie Randolph and, you know, uh, Jim Abbott and a bunch of others that just, you know, star-studded cast. And what I was really surprised by is just that even these Hall of Famers, All-Stars, Cy Young Award winners, they, they still battle fear, worry, and doubt on a regular basis. And they don't have confidence 100% of the time. They don't feel in control 100% of the time. So um, the, the difference is that when they do have those things going through their head, the negative self-talk and so on, that they have uh, figured out a way to kind of flip the switch and uh, regain control of their mind. Yeah. Talk about um, talk about the book and, and what you teach. So what what do we do when we're in that moment of pressure and uh, we, we have that fear, worry, doubt, we're starting to slide? What are some things we can do immediately to just get our head back in the game? Yeah, the, the main point that we teach in the book is, is one key skill called reframing. And reframing is really about recognizing when your reflexive kind of default view of a given situation isn't helping you, and then choosing to come up with different, better ways of viewing that situation that do help you. So um, there's lots of different examples of reframing, but um, one of the ones, just to give you an example that we use that's a, it's a non-baseball example, is um, President Reagan, when he was up for re-election in 1984, he was one of the oldest I think at the time he was the oldest sitting president. And he, he performed pretty poorly in his first debate against Walter Mondale. And in the second debate, um, Mondale kind of poked at him and made, made light of the fact that he was acting confused in the first debate. Right. Reagan basically, you know, he reframed the situation. He said, hey, I'm not going to let my opponent's youth and inexperience become an issue of this campaign. <laughs> and Mondale started laughing and, you know, Obviously, the whole audience started laughing, and right off the bat, that reframed it from, you know, Reagan's too old to Mondale's too young and inexperienced, and, you know, Reagan came over. The election of landslide, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that is like the perfect, uh, I think, um, visual almost of, or, you know, vignette of a reframe. And, um, you know, the thing about like a presidential candidate, you you would bet that they were probably talking about it. You know, he's going to play off your age issue. Mondell was so much younger. But um, I guess this gets a little harder to do the reframe in the moment. So I, I guess we could be reframing our thoughts before we're even in crunch time. Yeah, I think um, what I found, and, and again, I, I come at it as the student who's learned this over the last four years, but what I found is that the more... Um, that you practice it, it's like any other muscle. You just, you get to, you, you, it becomes more instinctual as you practice it more and more. So it might take you a little bit longer up front as you're first learning the skill, but it becomes almost instinctual after doing it habitually. So, um, it, you know, I'll, I'll share one story, which is actually, it opens up the book um, about sort of a reframe in the moment. And it, it, I think one of the things that I've certainly learned as well is that it's helpful when you've got others around you. Yeah. Who, um, can help you, whether it's a coach or whether it's a family member who recognize when you're kind of spiraling downhill and your negative, you know, the negative self-talk and so on, and they, and they catch that and they can help you reframe. So in this particular scenario that I'll, that I'll tell here is um, it was the American League playoffs and, the, you know, the famed Moneyball Oakland days were going into Yankee Stadium, you know, 57,000 screaming Yankee fans, um, at the particular point in time, the A's had a 2 nothing lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning. And 
Tim Hudson gives the ball to the A's closer, the person responsible for finishing the game. His name is Jason Isringhausen, you know, affectionately referred to as Izzy by his teammates. Right. Izzy goes out to the mound and he's got some bad memories because the previous season he had actually given up back-to-back home runs to the Yankees to lose a game. And so he's got that floating through his head, which obviously isn't helping him. And he gives off a lead-up, he gives up a lead-off double one of the guys that hit a home run previously, and then he walks to the next guys, and all of a sudden he's got runners on first and second base, nobody out, bottom of the ninth inning, winning run coming to the plate. And Jason Jambi jogs over to the, to the mound to say something to Izzy, and Rick Peterson from the dugout, the, the pitching coach, says, you know, I could, I could tell Izzy wasn't right. So he calls timeout, he jogs out to the mound, and Rick had this great habit of putting his hand on a pitcher's shoulder as he was talking to him to try to calm him down. And he said when he put his hand on Izzy's shoulder, he could feel Izzy just shaking. His whole body was shaking. And he said, hey, Izzy, what's going on here? And uh, Izzy was trembling, and he just he said, you know, Rick, I, I, I can't even feel my legs right now. And, you know, Rick right off the bat responded, that's okay, Izzy. We don't need you to kick a field goal. <laughs> so Izzy starts laughing, and you know, Javi starts laughing, and uh, it really just was a way to quickly relieve the tension, right? And sort of, you know, take all the pressure off Izzy momentarily. And then Rick basically followed that up real quickly by saying, "Listen, Izzy. You know, you're a professional glove hitter. That's what you do. You hit the ball. You hit the glove. You know, you throw the ball in the glove over and over and over. You've done it thousands of times before. That's what you're going to do here. You're going to hit the glove." So he basically refocused him on the task, which was, you know, he simplified it down to its absolute basic elements. You know, throw the ball in the catcher's glove and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, and stated it as as a fact. You're going to do it. That's what you do. That's instead of having to throw a strike, he just has to hit the glove. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think what happens is when we get in these pressure moments, it's so easy to get distracted. So I'm sure, you know, uh, I'm sure that Izzy was looking at the crowd. He was hearing them jeering. He was looking at the runners on base. You know, he's he's going through all this different stuff, and none of it was actually helping him perform the task at hand, which was to throw the ball in the catcher's glove. So, you know, Rick basically helped him cut through all the clutter and get him back on track immediately. And so that's an example of you know an immediate reframe that used both humor as well as a you know a focusing tactic to. Yeah, hit the glove. And I, I guess that's it, because there's something going on with Izzy in the moment. And I know you talk about it a lot in the book about kind of the, the caveman that kicks in. And we talk about it a lot on the show, this amygdala, the fight or flight. Maybe maybe walk us through um, what happens to our minds when we get in that stage of fear or, you know, fight or flight. What's happening to our body? Why wouldn't Izzy be able to feel his legs? Why was he shaking? Yeah, uh, great question. So, you know, I, I, uh, I'm the furthest thing from a neuroscientist, so I'll clarify that up front. <laughs> what, I, what I tried to do in the book is come up with a method that people that, that aren't neuroscientists, the average everyday layperson, can understand. And so we have, we have different sections of our brain. And, you know, the, one of the more primitive sections of the brain is, is that amygdala that's responsible for our fight-flight, you know, or freeze response. And it's, it's basically intended to help us survive. So back in prehistoric times, the people who had the, you know, the fastest responding, you know, uh, fastest response to, to you know, pressure situations, in most cases, physical threats in that, in that particular time, 
they survived the lungs. So people, this is really like built into our survival here. Um, and, but the problem now is that most of the threats we face aren't physical. They're actually psychological in nature. So, right. you know, they're, we don't need to, we don't need to fight flight or freeze. You know, we, we actually need to, to think, you know, effectively in the moment. And so the part of our brain that used to help us survive is really hurting us now. It's causing, you know, a, a physiological reaction in our body where we have cortisol, the stress hormone, coursing through our veins, causes our you know, heart rate to go up, our blood vessels to constrict. It's causing, you know, a lack of oxygen to our brain when we need thinking the most. And, um, you know, causes us essentially to choose a, a poor reaction. Um, or, you know, to, and the, the thing about that is that that caveman reaction where all this is going on and it creates this negative self-talk, it, it presents itself as if you have to listen to what it's telling you to do. So right. It might, might be screaming at you to fight, flight, or freeze, and it presents it as a command, but the reality is you, you have a choice. And so I think the, the learning that I had was you know, pause, recognize that you, that your caveman's asking you to do something or telling you to do something and just say, Hey, I don't have to do this. I have, there's other things I can choose to do in this scenario and hit the pause button, think through some different ways of handling the situation, better ways of handling the situation and use what we call your conscious thinker, which is the, the, um, the part of your brain that, that evolved later and is responsible for logic and and not just responding to emotions and threats. Right. I mean, it is interesting that we we have this kind of uh, reptilian brain, this caveman brain that um, yet we're trying to, for example, throw a ball um, 100 miles, 80, 90 miles an hour to a batter and do it in, with a with precision. Um, which wasn't really what that brain was ever invented for. Or I, with my clients, I talked to them about, you know, that fight or flight brain was never created and designed so that you could have a happy, romantic, connected, communicative relationship. You know, it, it's not, it's almost, it's, it's, it's the antithesis to that. But if you want to, if you want to have the better life and the better relationship, you got to get out of that, that, that brain. That's exactly right. Yeah. There, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually was with the initial thought that popped through my head. The more I learned about this is, you know, I wonder if you I wonder if you performed a partial lobotomy and just got rid of this part of your brain. Yeah. How, how would you function? And the reality is you actually would perform much, much better under pressure if you didn't have that amygdala. Yeah. Uh, the problem is when you actually did encounter a <laughs> physical threat that required that you'd be killed you'd be in trouble. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it's, you know, that amygdala does have some very favorable um outcomes as well in the regard that it's responsible for, you know, the joy in our life, the, you know, those positive emotional experiences that we have. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to experience it. So Good. not all bad, but it doesn't help you under pressure. That's, that's the fact. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, let's take a break, Judd. We're speaking with uh, Judd Hoekstra. He is the author of the co-author of the book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. He wrote the book with Major League Pitching Coach Rick Peterson. He's teaching us how to handle the pressures in real time, uh, crunch time. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion, giving you the tools you need to uh, be the good in the world. Talk about good. BYU Radio. Marathons may be an everyday occurrence on Earth. 
But after more than 11 years, Opportunity has broken a distance record on Mars. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Opportunity may not be setting a speed record, but the sturdy little rover has certainly covered a record distance on the Red Planet. The rover, one of a pair that landed on Mars in January 2004, has operated 11 years beyond its original mission expectation and has covered more than 26 miles of the planet. The rover has already overcome obstacles to explore two large craters, find multiple signs of water, survive a dangerous dust storm, and take images of a passing comet. And this little rover is far from finished. As Opportunity continues to work productively, studying the Martian soil and providing calibrations for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it appears Opportunity is indeed on Mars for the long run. And its stamina would make any marathon runner proud. To learn more about discoveries on Mars, search Innovation Now on Facebook. I'm Jennifer Pulley. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Can't tune in on SiriusXM? No worries. You can listen to all the same shows and programs on the BYU Radio app, streaming in your car, home, or workplace. The BYU Radio app is free to download, and it's available on iOS, Android, and Amazon mobile devices. So download it today. My kids are ready to meet my dad. They're ready to be introduced, and I get to do that through my stories. So as we start on... You know, past New York Yankees manager and quasi-philosopher Yogi Berra once said that baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. Performing at a high level during critical times is a sign of a great athlete and also a great coach. Our next guest, Judd Hoekstra, co-wrote the book Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. He wrote it with Major League Baseball pitching coach Rick Peterson, and uh, it's going to help us understand how to handle it when times get tough. Uh, Judd, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is, a, I, I think, a really important uh uh, you know, thing to focus on. I, I'm starting a, a class with my own clients on anxiety and how to handle pressure. And boy, what better way to learn about it than Major League Baseball? Absolutely. It is uh, plenty of crunch time moments in Major League Baseball. And, you know, the, the, the solutions translate from the baseball field to our everyday lives. Like like just giving your first presentation, right, or having to turn in that report and uh, and then defend your views in, in a business meeting or something. I, I guess I guess the crunch time comes in many different ways. What got you of all the things you could write about? I mean, you're a you're work with a speakers company and uh, with Ken Blanchard companies. What got you on this topic? Well, uh, I. This is a little embarrassing to share, but I'll I'll let you know that I've I've choked at crunch time moments throughout various points in my life, and I've had I've actually had a lot of success in sports growing up. Uh, I played baseball in college and hockey in college, uh, done well in business. But there were times that 
you know, it, I didn't come through in the clutch, and it was there's some of the more painful memories that I've that I've got actually. And so uh, then I actually was witness to one of my kids was struggling during a tryout period and thought, oh my gosh, it's happening again, and I got to find a solution to this problem, and and then ended up uh, getting connected with Rick Peterson, the pitching coach who worked with the Oakland A's Moneyball teams and the New York Mets, and uh, I figured Rick would be the guy that would have answers because he's, as a pitching coach, you're responsible for going out to the mound and getting someone back on track, calming them down in 30 seconds or less, and he was known as a, a mental game guru, so it ended up being a, he, you know, I was a student and he was a teacher. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine really like anything more difficult than being, you know, a starting pitcher where in the World Series and you got to you got to bring your heat and you're playing against the best team in the world and then all of a sudden you have a bad inning. Boy, if you're not in control of that that moment, it seems like it could all slide away. Yeah, absolutely and um I was fortunate enough to do you know, a number of interviews, over 50 interviews for the book and got to interview a number of the people that I grew up watching in baseball, the, the Tom Glavins of the world and uh, Willie Randolph and, you know, uh, Jim Abbott and a bunch of others that just, you know, star-studded cast. And what I was really surprised by is just that even these Hall of Famers, All-Stars, Cy Young Award winners, they, they still battle fear, worry, and doubt on a regular basis. And they don't have confidence 100% of the time. They don't feel in control 100% of the time. So um, the, the difference is that when they do have those things going through their head, the negative self-talk and so on, that they have uh, figured out a way to kind of flip the switch and uh, regain control of their mind. Yeah. Talk about um, talk about the book and, and what you teach. So what, what do we do when we're in that moment of pressure and uh, we, we have that fear, worry, doubt, we're starting to slide. What are some things we can do immediately to just get our head back in the game? Yeah, the, the, the main point that we teach in the book is, is one key skill called reframing. And reframing is really about recognizing when your reflexive kind of default view of a given situation isn't helping you, and then choosing to come up with different, better ways of viewing that situation that do help you. So um, there's lots of different examples of reframing, but um, one of the ones, just give you an example that we use that's a, it's a non-baseball example, is um, President Reagan, when he was up for re-election in 1984, he was one of the oldest, I think at the time he was the oldest sitting president, and he, he performed pretty poorly in his first debate against Walter Mondale. And in the second debate, um, Mondale kind of poked at him and made made light of the fact that he was acting confused in the first debate. Right. Reagan basically, you know, he reframed the situation. He said, hey, I'm not going to let my opponent's youth and inexperience become an issue of this campaign. <laughs> and Mondale started laughing, and, you know, obviously the whole audience started laughing, and right off the bat, that reframed it from, you know, Reagan's too old to Mondale's too young and inexperienced, and, you know, Reagan Game over. The election of landslide, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that is like the perfect, uh, I think um, visual almost of or you know vignette of a reframe, and um, you know the thing about like a presidential candidate, you you would bet that they were probably talking about it. You know he's going to play off your age issue. Mondale was so much younger, but um, I guess this gets a little harder to do the reframe in the moment. So I, I guess we could be reframing our thoughts before we're even in crunch time. 
Yeah, I think um, what I found, and, and again, I, I come at it as the student who's learned this over the last four years, but what I found is that the more um, that you practice it, it's like any other muscle. You just, you get to, you, you, it becomes more instinctual as you practice it more and more. So it might take you a little bit longer up front as you're first learning the skill, but it becomes almost instinctual after doing it habitually. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll share one story, which is actually, it opens up the book. Um, about sort of a reframe in the moment. And it, it, I think one of the things that I've certainly learned as well is that it's helpful when you've got others around you yeah. who um, can help you, whether it's a coach or whether it's a family member who recognize when you're kind of spiraling downhill and your negative, you know, the negative self-talk and so on, and they, and they catch that and they can help you reframe. So in this particular scenario that I'll, that I'll tell here is um, it was the American League playoffs and, you know, the famed Moneyball Oakland A's were going into Yankee Stadium, you know, 57,000 screaming Yankee fans. Um, at the particular point in time, the A's had a 2 nothing lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning, and Tim Hudson gives the ball to the A's closer, the person responsible for finishing the game. His name is Jason Isringhausen, you know, affectionately referred to as Izzy by his teammates. Right. Izzy goes out to the mound and he's got some bad memories because the previous season he had actually given up back-to-back home runs to the Yankees to lose a game. And so he's, he's got that floating through his head, which obviously isn't helping him. And he gives off a lead-off, he gives up a lead-off double to one of the guys that hit a home run previously, and then he walks to the next guy. And all of a sudden he's got runners on first and second base, nobody out, bottom of the ninth inning, winning run coming to the plate. And Jason Jambi jogs over to the, to the mound to say something to Izzy and, Rick Peterson from the dugout, the, the pitching coach, says, you know, I could, I could tell Izzy wasn't right. So he calls timeout. He jogs out to the mound. And Rick had this great habit of putting his hand on a pitcher's shoulder as he was talking to him to try to calm him down. And he said when he put his hand on Izzy's shoulder, he could feel Izzy just shaking. His whole body was shaking. And he said, hey, Izzy, what's going on here? And uh, – Izzy was trembling, and he just he said, "You know, Rick, I, I I can't even feel my legs right now." And you know, Rick right off the bat responded, "That's okay, Izzy. We don't need you to kick a field goal." <laughs> so Izzy starts laughing, and you know, Jabby starts laughing, and uh, it really just was a way to quickly relieve the tension, right? And sort of you know, take all the pressure off Izzy momentarily, and then Rick basically followed that up real quickly by saying. Listen, Izzy. You know you're a professional glove hitter. That's what you do. You hit the ball. You hit the glove. You know you throw the ball in the glove over and over and over. You've done it thousands of times before. That's what you're going to do here. You're going to hit the glove. So he basically refocused him on the task, which was you know he simplified it down to its absolute basic elements. You know, throw the ball in the catcher's glove, and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, uh, and stated it as as a fact. You're going to do it. That's what you do. That's instead of having to throw a strike, he just has to hit the glove. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think what happens is when we get in these pressure moments, it's so easy to get distracted. So I'm sure, you know, uh, I'm sure that Izzy was looking at the crowd. He was hearing them jeering. He was looking at the runners on base. You know, he's he's going through all this different stuff, and none of it was actually helping him perform the task at hand, which was to throw the ball in the catcher's glove. So, you know, Rick basically helped him cut through all the clutter and get him back on track immediately. And so that's an example of, you know, an immediate reframe that used both humor as well as a, you know, a focusing tactic to 
yeah, hit the glove. And I, I guess that's it, because there's something going on with Izzy in the moment. And I know you talk about it a lot in the book about kind of the, the caveman that kicks in. And we talk about it a lot on the show, this amygdala, the fight or flight. Maybe maybe walk us through um, what happens to our minds when we get in that stage of fear or, you know, fight or flight? What's happening to our body? Why wouldn't Izzy be able to feel his legs? Why was he shaking? Yeah, uh, great question. So, you know, I, I, uh, I'm the furthest thing from a neuroscientist, so I'll clarify that up front. <laughs> what, I, what I tried to do in the book is come up with a method that people that, that aren't neuroscientists, the average everyday layperson can understand. And so we have we have different sections of our brain. And, you know, the, one of the more primitive sections of the brain is, is that amygdala that's responsible for our fight, flight, you know, or freeze response. And it's, it's basically intended to help us survive. So back in prehistoric times, the people who had the, you know, the fastest responding, you know, uh, fastest response to, to you know, pressure situations, in most cases, physical threats in that, in that particular time, they survived along. So people, this is really like built into our survival here. Um, and, but the problem now is that most of the threats we face aren't physical. They're actually psychological in nature. So, right. you know, they're, we don't need to, we don't need to fight flight or freeze. You know, we, we actually need to, to think, you know, effectively in the moment. And so the part of our brain that used to help us survive is really hurting us now. It's causing you know, a, a physiological reaction in our body where we have cortisol, the stress hormone, coursing through our veins, causes our you know, heart rate to go up, our blood vessels to constrict. It's causing, you know, a lack of oxygen to our brain when we need thinking the most and, um, you know, causes us essentially to choose a, a poor reaction. Um, or, and the, the thing about that is that that caveman reaction where all this is going on and it creates this negative self-talk, it presents itself as if you have to listen to what it's telling you to do. So right. it might, might be screaming at you to fight, flight, or freeze, and it presents it as a command, but the reality is you, you have a choice. And so I think the, the learning that I had was, you know, pause, recognize that, you, that your caveman's asking you to do something or telling you to do something, and just say, hey, I don't have to do this. I have, there's other things I can choose to do in this scenario. And Hit the pause button, think through some different ways of handling the situation, better ways of handling the situation, and use what we call your conscious thinker, which is the, the, um, the part of your brain that, that evolved later and is responsible for logic and, and not just responding to emotions and threats. Right. I mean, it is interesting that we, we have this kind of uh, reptilian brain, this caveman brain that um, – Yet we're trying to, for example, throw a ball um, 100 mi- 80, 90 miles an hour to a batter and do it in, with, a, with precision, um, which wasn't really what that brain was ever invented for. Or I, with my clients, I talked to them about, you know, that fight or flight brain was never created and designed so that you could have a happy, romantic, connected, communicative relationship. <laughs> You know, it's not it's almost it's 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 the antithesis to that. But if you want to if you want to have the better life and the better relationship, you got to get out of that 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 brain. That's exactly right. Yeah. there. You know, it's interesting. I I actually was the the initial thought that popped through my head. The more I learned about this is 
Yeah, I wonder if you I wonder if you performed a partial lobotomy and just got rid of this part of your brain. Yeah. How would you function? And the reality is you actually would perform much, much better under pressure if you didn't have that amygdala. Yeah. Uh, the problem is when you actually did encounter a <laughs> physical threat that required that. You'd be killed. You'd be in trouble. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it's, you know, that amygdala does have some very favorable um, outcomes as well in the regard that it's responsible for, you know, the joy in our life, the, you know, those positive emotional experiences that we have. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to experience it. So it's not all bad, but it doesn't help you under pressure. That's, that's the fact. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's take a break, Judd. We're speaking with uh, Judd Hoekstra. He is the author of the co-author of the book Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. He wrote the book with Major League Pitching Coach Rick Peterson. He's teaching us how to handle the pressures in real time. Uh, crunch time. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion, giving you the tools you need to uh, be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is uh, Judd Hoekstra. He's the author, co-author of the book Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, a book that he wrote with Major League Pitching Coach Rick Peterson. And it's about how to overcome that caveman that's inside of each of us, that fight or flight or freeze brain that we all, you know, have to deal with. Some, though, it seems like, get more run over by that caveman. He seems to take over some of us more than others. It strikes fear and worry and doubt in our minds. And uh, Judd's teaching us how to uh, reframe that that thought and turn it into something else. Judd Hoekstra, thank you so much for being with us. Great being with you, Matt. And again, you can, anybody can go to his website, juddhoekstra.com. Hoekstra is H-O-E-K-S-T-R-A, hoekstra.com. Um, Judd, so so as far as reframing goes, what, what are some tricks, some techniques you use to actually do it in the moment? You you said one thing you do is you pause, you hit the pause button. Um, does that just take practice? Is it when you notice that you're starting to freak out? When do you hit the pause button? So I, I learned a question that I love to ask myself, which, which is pretty simple. It's, do I want to think or feel this way? So if I'm recognizing that I've got thoughts going through my head or emotions running through my brain that um, I just ask myself, is this, is this how I want to be thinking and feeling? And if the answer is no, then that, that lets me know that right now the caveman is controlling my brain and I need to, I need to put the pause button on and identify some different, better thoughts, uh, different ways of looking at the situation. That's so a great that's question. A question that I use to trigger myself. And, you know, another one that I learned from uh, the CEO of WD 40, Gary Ridge is, he said, I like to ask myself, you know, is what I'm thinking based on fact, fiction, or the opinion of others? Um, so often the thoughts that are running through our head have, have nothing to do with facts. They're, you know, they're fiction. They're, they're things that we, we're making up ourselves or that, you know, we're reacting to things that are not necessarily, you know, that, that others are sharing with us that aren't factual. Interesting. And um, by one of the things I teach in my program, th- these self-reflective questions you're talking about, they actually move you from the fight-or-flight brain into the prefrontal cortex. It moves you into the higher brain. Exactly. 
So by just by just pausing enough to ask yourself the reflective question, you're already moving to a better space. And then when you're in that better space, it usually can change your feeling. Yeah, another another uh, trick that I've learned is uh, if you pick someone that you would really admire. So it could be um, a coach, it could be someone you work with, it could be a famous historical figure, um, and ask, you know, if that person were in my shoes right now, how would they react? Hmm. So I, I work with a colleague that that thinks a lot of Winston Churchill, and you know, she says every time I'm sort of facing my caveman, I say, what would Churchill do in this situation? And you know, you could. It doesn't have to be Churchill. You can pick anybody, but the, the reality is it helps you um, think about it. You, you know, another question that I've heard is, um, if I were coaching my kid in this situation, what would I tell them to do, hmm. and why wouldn't I listen to that advice as opposed to all the stuff, all the you know, not so good thoughts that are going through my head right now? Yeah, it's interesting. Why? Why do you think it is that we're so willing to beat ourselves up, but we we wouldn't do the same thing to our child? Um, I think I, that's a great question, Matt. I don't know if I've got, I don't know if I've got a, uh, a great answer to it, but I would say, I think the immediate reaction is we, we want to present our best selves to others and we don't necessarily hold ourselves to the same standard when it comes to you know, being our best for ourselves. I think you're right. And, and, you know, there's just, our mind is, is a hard thing because the only way you can evaluate your thinking is with your own thinking, but we're also, yeah. our mind is so self um, it's so manipulative in a way where there's just so many different tricks that can play on us. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. That, the, uh, the whole idea of, you know, somebody that you really admire, that's the whole what would Jesus do movement where everyone tries to imagine their, their spiritual leader or what would Gandhi do in this situation? How would Buddha go about handling such a situation? Um, there's something, I guess, powerful because we all aspire to be better, and why not get to the person, get the person that's best at this in our mind? Yeah, no doubt. It's it's a pretty simple trick. Now, what do you do when you are? I mean, if I know I have this tendency to kind of fall apart during crunch time, I may not know it till I absolutely have a meltdown in a crunch time moment. Um, are there ways to? you know, prepare and kind of preempt the, the fall or, you know, do stuff before time that gets me in that mode. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's sort of two key learnings uh, that I'll share with you in, in, in sort of happen in sequence. One is from a preparation standpoint, um, one of the biggest learnings I have, and it sounds obvious, but I'll, I'll explain why it's not quite so obvious is it is that you need to over prepare for pressure situations. You, normal preparation isn't enough. That when you're under pressure, you actually need to be so over-prepared, not just prepared, um, that you can let your, that you don't need to think in the pressure situation. You can just let your instincts take over at that point as far as let your muscle memory um, based on the preparation you've done. And so, you know, it's funny. I asked Rick one time, you know, how do you know when to go out and speak to a pitcher on the mound? Like, what, what's your trigger that lets you know he needs help. And he said, you know, the second I see that pitcher start to think, I head out there. <laughs> uh, essentially, he knows that when the, when he sees the pitcher thinking out on the mound, it, it's the caveman thinking that's taken over at that point, and he needs to go pause it and stop it and get him reframed. So I think, you know, the, the preparation lesson is um, 
you know, there's a story in, in the book where Rick was actually working with Michael Jordan when he was uh, he had taken a little time off from basketball, left the Chicago Bulls and went and was in the Chicago White Sox minor league system. And Rick happened to be actually teaching um, a sports psychology program for the Chicago White Sox at the time. And so he met Michael Jordan, and one of the questions he asked Michael was, you know, at what point did you realize that you were MJ, you know, that you were this guy that was going to transform the game of basketball? And um, Michael Jordan responded by saying, you know, after my sophomore year at North Carolina, Coach Dean Smith sat me down and he showed me videotape, um, a, a number of different clips, and he, he said, you know, was this your freshman year or was this your sophomore year? And the reality is, Jordan had this dynamite freshman year and he had a, he had a good sophomore year, but not as good as he was as a freshman. And coach Smith said, well, what was the difference between your play, which was unbelievable freshman year and, you know, good to great, you know, uh, sophomore year. And he said, it's my preparation. I prepared so hard freshman year and I was so ready to go that I just, you know, could let it all hang out on the court. When Mm -hmm. I got out there sophomore year, I kind of took some things for granted, didn't work as hard and just assumed it was going to happen, and it didn't. Um, and he said, I've learned the lesson that it's not enough to have talent, that it's actually your preparation that, that drives your performance. So talent doesn't equal performance. Preparation equals performance. And you know, he, he learned the lesson of you've got to be so overly prepared for any pressure situation. There's, an, there's another interesting anecdote in the book about Michael Phelps, obviously world-class swimmer, best that's ever lived, and his coach used to, in practice, try to come up with ways that were way harder than what he'd ever experienced in a meet. So for example, at one point he stepped on Michael Phelps's goggles, cracking them so that when he dove into the pool in practice, his goggles would fill with water and <laughs> he'd be forced to, you know, under this pressure situation of forced to swim blindly basically. Yeah. And, you know, he never thought he probably would need that, but at, you know, interestingly enough in the 2008 Olympics, um, Phelps, you know, jumps in for a hundred meter race uh, in the finals, and sure enough, his goggles break and water starts flooding his eyes, and he essentially has to swim the race blindly, and he he ends up you know doing just that and breaking a world record in the process. So, um, the idea that he was ready for anything that could come his way, and I, I mean, in a way, that at a very core level of your self, your psyche, that sets you up with this level of confidence that you can fall back on that then you don't need to fear it. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was interesting when I was in spring training, I I went to visit Rick when he was with the Orioles in 2014, I went down there and I was just, you know, it was at a minor league complex. I was watching the drills that they were going through and they practiced a drill, you know, bottom of the ninth, two outs, runners on second and third, and they went over it, over it, and over it, almost just like exposure to this, you know, high pressure situation, so that when it happened in the game, it was like, gosh, we've done this, you know, fifty, a hundred, one hundred and fifty times already. Um, what do we have to fear? And we, and not only that, but we actually performed well when we were in our preparation too. Man. That's cool. Uh, uh, really quickly, one other idea I know you bring up, and I think it's it's magical, is this idea of trying easier. We we seem to try harder, but just clarify what trying easier looks like. Yeah, that's a that's exactly where I was headed next, which is so it's over preparation as you're leading up to a performance, but once you get to the time that you're actually performing, so whether you're delivering that big speech or whether you're you know teeing off for the 
you know, local country club championship. It's a matter of throttling back and just giving, performing in a relaxed state that allows you to, you know, to not be tense and stressed and full of, you know, full of anxiety. And the try easy idea is um, based on research, which shows that most people's best performances, they, when you think back on those, they're almost effortless. You didn't think of it as a grind. You didn't think of it as being full of tension. And there's a lot of research that shows, um, there's one particular research study I read when I was writing the book about Olympic sprinters who were preparing for the, the trials and they, all of their times were worse than their previous bests as they were preparing. And the coach said, I want you to just run this at 90%. And when they ran it at 90%, their times were better than their previous best times. So, <laughs> I want you to just back it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. The whole idea of taking the tension out of your performance. That's awesome. Well, it, you know, Judd, it sounds like a winner, and it sounds like a, a book that so many of us need, so many of us really need to to get a handle on. And uh, appreciate your time, your insight. Again, the book is Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Judd Hoekstra is his name. I'm going to see if I can get him back, too. He's written other books, Leading at a Higher Level, as well as Who Killed Change. Great insights um, and tools. That's what we need, folks, solutions to be able to be the best we can be. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. When we come back, we're talking about the inspiring women of our lives. You know, yesterday we all recognized International Women's Day, which was a day, uh, you know, Hopefully, we all took some time to recognize those amazing women in our lives and how much they do for us. There are many women throughout uh, time that have made a difference in our communities or influenced people around them. Caitlin Thomas, by the way, one of those amazing women, is here today uh, to talk about these amazing women and uh, hopefully give us some hope, inspire us as to the power of women. Thanks, yes, Caitlin, thanks, for being Matt. here. Matt. That was so nice. Well, you're nice to be here uh, with us. I love it. I love this show. I loved yesterday. Um, it was fun. I think, you know, we talked about a couple of months ago how yeah. we have Women's Day. Well, we do have one. We have Women's Day. And then I think it's like Women's Month. Yeah, it's like Women's Month. So that's cool. It's a, it's, we ought Feeling to be celebrating. all empowered. Exactly. So I went and found some of my favorite women throughout history. Now, this doesn't mean these are the best women. These are just some They're of just my favorites. They're just some women, right. Um, my first one is Anne Frank. Oh, yes. Just a young girl who made history in... I don't even, like, probably doesn't even know how, the impact that she's had. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Her story is, is phenomenal. It's not just that she, you know, went through all these hard things, because a lot of women go through these hard things, but it was her attitude that she was able to keep. And maybe that was partly because she was a, so young, but the attitude that she keeps is pretty inspiring. Oh, yeah. You know, like, if she can stay positive and see the world through the good, like, still see good in the world even after that, you know. The rest of us should be. We can, too. We can, too. It's a great example. Um, of course, Mother Teresa, yeah. Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, you know, she's she's very inspiring. She aimed at looking after those who had nobody to look after them through her. Through I the love order that. that she made the missionaries of charity. How did you do so. it? They asked her. How did you keep How did you keep doing it and doing it? And she said, well, whenever I would serve the one and look in their face, I'd see the face of my Savior. And I think cool. that, to me, just embodies womanhood. Like, we are... Um, like we were just made to be compassionate. That's yeah. the one thing nurturing. that women have, nurturing. We take no, but there's people. some women that aren't. Right. But, but they, you know, 
But overall, I think that right. to me is womanhood is kindness and compassion. That's right. It's powerful. Um, Billie Jean King, this one you were just talking tennis about. giant. Tennis giant. I love her because she looked at the man, um, Bobby Riggs, who Bobby told her, Riggs takes you know, her he on. He said men were superior athletes. I'll play you, and she was just kind of cool. She kept it cool. She was like, okay, Let's do it. and uh, she beat him. <laughs> she schooled him. It was awesome. Yes, I love that. But she wasn't. I don't think she was ever mean or. No, I, I don't think. She was a wonderful woman. She was very, she still is. you know. She's she still would, alive. She's she just wonderful. kind of used her talent. She didn't need to be mean and use her words to hurt people. She just did what she did best. Bobby, let's him. take it on the court. And she I, she worked him over. And it was awesome. It's good. That's awesome. Um, Florence Nightingale, um, she nursed wounded soldiers during the Crimean, is that how you say it? Crimean, yeah. Crimean War. Her passion and dedication to the profession changed the public's perception about nurses and her insistence on improving sanitary conditions is believed to have saved many lives during that war. Because you wash your hands. Right. She, she, she would wash know, her hands. washing needles, be, not yeah. sharing needles. And That's all right. of these things that sound like common sense, but she was one of the first nurses, female nurses, to implement yeah. those practices. <laughs> saved millions of lives. She'd always wash her hands before the next patient. And the doctor's like, no, you always wash your hands you know, after, after the whole day's done. Yeah. Um, one of my personal favorites, J.K. Rowling. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, she was poor and had nothing, and she had dozens of, you know, editors and publishing companies tell her that her books weren't good enough, and she showed them. Now she, she is. Yeah, She's take that. A billionaire. I mean, has anybody, I don't know, if has there been any series that popular? No, they've said that she, still to this day, there hasn't been any that's made quite that much money and had yeah. quite that big of a fan base. You know, around the world. Well, and she brought witchcraft back, which, you know, many thought was a dead art. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of many Christians. <laughs> I love I love her. And, you know, even if I don't always agree with everything she stands for politically and whatnot, like she she is a positive voice for women. And she's fairly strong, but she's also kind. I, I really, really like her That's why I think this is cool, Caitlin, because you're about to graduate in a bit and uh, in yeah. a few months. And I just sit there and I wonder what's Caitlin Thomas going to offer the world. I don't know. It's fun. Well, it's and it's also awesome because not just these women, but I mean, think, there's women in our own lives. Like, of course, it sounds cliche, but my mom. Yeah. I re- I've always looked up to my mom. She's always been a working mom, um, which I mean doesn't make her any better than any other than a stay at home right. mom. But for me, she's always sacrificed you know a lot of her life to work and to provide for all of us. To all of our moms. So to Thank all you. moms, being a mom is a full time right. job. Oh, it's a tough cookie. We love moms. That's a hard one. Thanks, Caitlin. You're the best. Appreciate it. And to all the women out there, happy Women's Day. Thank you. We're out. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, happy National Meatball Day. Yum and yum and yum. I've decided I will go get a meatball sandwich. Meatball sub today. I'm doing it. It's also Popcorn Lover's Day. I might sprinkle a little popcorn on the meatball of the sandwich. That's <laughs> your third, third kernel, kernel popped. Uh, just not allowing me to pop a lot of corn today. Just three kernels so far. Can you, I pop one more? We... Mm, all right. Just one more. Mm, this one's being stubborn. Is it taking... Some, there, there we it go. Is. Ah. Okay, but no more. Okay. We're on a budget. 
Yeah, save your popcorn for later. It's panic day as well, the day you, f- you can feel free to panic any way you, you need to. Just let it loose. You don't have to stay calm. Go for it. Cry your way through it. Scream your way through it. Eat meat to balls. It's all good. So much going on today. Uh, this hour, in fact, uh, Heather Johnson will be joining us. Heather's going to come talk to us about how to get your kids to actually believe you love them. Because a lot of times they don't feel like you love them, even though you say, I love you. There's other ways to get the love in their little hearts. It's a powerful thought. Uh, we'll learn about that. I mean, I feel the same way. Jeff doesn't know how much I love him. Maybe if you told me more often. Yeah. Maybe. You don't have to show me. You just have to tell me. I know. I've been I've been leaving you uh, peanut butter, Reese's peanut butter things. It was you? I've been leaving this you whole Skittles. Time? Twix bars? Twix bars. <sighs> There's a chance that was me. That is a true statement. There's there also is a, chance, a chance. There's a chance it wasn't me. But either way, I love you. We're going to get uh, to all the empty news as well. Crazy stories. Uh, Florida man has to fight off an alligator with a putter. I mean, once you once you have to fight the alligator off, you know it's already it's already turned into a bad round of golf. Um, we also will um, be talking about how sometimes uh, these kids nowadays they don't even know how to drive a stick shift, so it's hard to steal a car when you carjack a car that's got a stick shift. Then, then you got to get the clutch involved. It's a, it's a lot harder. There's going to be a day when these kids don't know how to steal a car with an actual key because everything will be keyless. Yeah. What so they'll get in then? a car and they're, you're supposed to put a key in. Yeah. They're toast. Yeah. I mean, eventually cars, you won't be able to steal them because it'll have to be like a thumbprint, right? Some, some eye scan. It's going to be scary. Like in Minority Report. Exactly. Uh, and we'll also get to some news about um, we're going to do a little brick test. We want to see, you know, if you can tell the difference between a brick versus something else going through. Or brick brick hitting glass versus yeah. brick hitting other things. Can you tell what the brick's hitting? It's a, it's a great test. It's coming up next. But first, oh, by the way, BYU Sports Nation as well. Find out what's up on their show. And, of course, the hero of the day. All straight ahead. And let's start it all off with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Republican Senator Tom Cotton has some... He came in, as it says here, hot this morning with a tweet storm on the Obama on the Obamacare repeal and replace process, which has been running into some of very early issues. He says, House health care bill can't pass Senate without major changes. To my friends in the House, pause, start over, get it right, don't get it fast. GOP shouldn't act like Dem- Democrats did in, when they passed Obamacare. No excuse to release bill Monday night, start voting Wednesday with no budget estimate. What matters in the long run is better, more affordable health care for Americans, not House leaders' arbitrary legislative calendar. Why it matters, Republicans can't afford a few, uh, any defections and still pass a bill through the House, but the Senate is an entirely different issue, and for Cotton to go public so early is a danger sign for House leadership that they don't have Senate support for yeah. Republicans. What is their deal? Also this morning, Rand Paul introduced his own replacement bill, except in his bill it separates the repeal part from the replace part. They're, they're breaking them out. See, this is where you're going to start getting multiple bills. Yeah, so instead of doing it all at the same time, 
let's repeal it and then let's figure out how to replace it. Yeah. But that would leave people possibly under or not insured and that's the problem people don't want to face. Holy cow. So it's just, it's getting more convoluted, which is, you know, government. That's how it works. FBI Director James Comey slammed tech companies for their increasingly airtight encryption methods, suggesting that such tools are preventing the FBI from being able to conduct its lawful investigations. The advent of default, ubiquitous strong encryption is making more and more of the room in which the FBI investigates very dark, Comey told a cybersecurity conference at Boston College. Comey suggested that the strong encryption breaks the bargain the American people have made but he disputes claims that he is advocating for weaker encryption or so-called encryption backdoors into our phones. Ooh. Still, there is no such thing as absolute privacy in America, Comey said. That's the bargain, and we made that bargain over two centuries ago to achieve two goals, to achieve the very, very important goal of privacy and to achieve the important goal of security. Widespread default encryption changes that bargain. In my view, it shatters the bargain. It's a bargain shatterer. I'm not sure what the bargain is. Is he referring to the Constitution? I don't know, no. And does the Constitution, like, have a security aspect and a privacy aspect, and somehow yeah, those two things the are bar- balanced? Yeah. And that's what he's kind of referring yeah. to, this bargain. We're blowing up our rights versus... Every time he's talked about this, he wants a way into the phone, right? <laughs> the way into the phone is either you give him some code so he can break into the phone, or we end using encryption. But then he says he doesn't want to do those two things. No. So it's very confusing as so, to what he wants. Well, he wants them to just turn over He wants everyone access. just to give me your phone. Just let me see what... They have 2,000 phones. They can't get into half of them. They have warrants, but they can't get through the encryption, and no one helps them, and so they feel like they're not being able to do their job. You know what? They ought to ask Donald Trump how to fix this. He can do it. He can get it done in an hour. Uh, the, the FCC is investigating an alarming 911 outage that affected AT&T wireless customers nationwide Wednesday. Police departments in various cities reported the outage with customers unable to dial 911 from their phones. Police took to social media to offer alternative non-emergency phone numbers in case of emergency, though that meant dispatchers were unable to see callers' locations that are built into the 911 system. Although the issue was resolved late Wednesday, it was unclear what caused the widespread outage. So that's a little concerning if yeah, you needed totally. 911 and had an AT&T phone. Where do you go if you can't call 911? Top of your house, start yelling? I don't know. Call for a pizza. Yeah, there you go. They'll get there in 10 minutes. Pizza people, we have stories all the time. They're saving lives. Saving lives left yeah. and right. And finally, a 23-year-old man survived a 1,500-foot fall off of Pyramid Peak in Colorado. Ooh. Ryan Montoya had been missing since Sunday, was found Tuesday afternoon by a jogger on a nearby road. That person managed to find and flag down rescue crews who had been searching for Montoya. They first rushed him back to a local ranch and then on to a hospital. He's alive, a jubilant mother posted on Facebook after getting word. Montoya had been climbing solo on the east face of the mountain Sunday. And per his mom, he was about 40 feet from the summit when a chunk of ice and snow broke and sent him tumbling down the mountain. He said his fall was long enough to, quote, do a lot of talking, thinking, and yelling all the way down. Holy cow. That is a long fall. A little scary there. Once he landed in a snowfield, Montoya used his good arm to dig out a snow cave and spend the night in. His emergency supplies had fuel so he could melt the snow to drink, and on Monday afternoon he ventured out for help. So he's able to walk after falling off a mountain. He was well prepared for this fall. Well, he was climbing a mountain. He, he thought ahead. Uh, he had to make another cave Monday night, and on Tuesday morning he sat out one more time, spotted the runner. In addition to frostbite, Montoya had a hurt hip and a broken elbow. That's all the injuries from falling off a mountain. That's a uh, How many feet again? 1,500 feet. <laughs> oh, and he spent how many nights there? Two nights. Monday and Tuesday night he had to 
make snow caves to live in. Without Netflix? No Netflix. What? He had the flame of, of you know, water that was but giving him water. So He's still alive? Yeah. That's a miracle. He's walking around. That's crazy. Um, and he's probably going to heal up and climb the mountain again. But what do we always say on the show? It's not the fall that kills you. It's not. Right. It's the ground. It's that sudden stop at the end. It's that stop. Except his sudden stop was in a pile of snow. How fortunate. Wow. You know what we also say? I think we coined it here on the show. What's that? Why do we fall? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up again. Um, yeah. We, I guess okay. we've said that before. Sure. I don't know. And that. then they used it in the movie Batman Begins. Oh. Knew it had to have some tie to something... I don't care about. <laughs> wow. I mean, I mean, I mean that in the best way possible. Oh, come on. Sorry. Hey, hey, hey. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, cops handcuffed and arrested a 99-year-old grandmother who's never committed a crime. Jeez, what's happening to police today? The Telegraph reports that uh, there were no protests. No one was outraged. This is because Annie, who lives in the Netherlands... Wanted to experience a police cell from within. At age 99, it was part of her bucket list. Before she dies, she wanted to be able to be to go to the pokey. Last week, police in Annie's hometown happily obliged. Officers put handca- handcuffs on Annie, closed her in a jail cell, posting photos on the department's Facebook page. Time says it looks like she's having an absolute blast. That's wow. cute. You know what's on my bucket list? What? Um, so there's a Homer popcorn. So Homer bucket, popcorn bucket. Um, Grand Slam? Yes. Is there a Grand so, Slam bucket? So I I actually have buckets on my bucket list. Oh, you these are buckets of popcorn that you want to slam? No, no, no. I just want to collect all these buckets. Why? Why, why, why? Because isn't that what a bucket list is? Well, no, you know what? You could actually – you could think bigger. You could do something like change the world. Make I people just, laugh. I feel like if you're going to have a bucket list, it should have buckets on it. Yeah. You know Otherwise, what? it's not a bucket list. Hey, it's your list. You can put anything you want on it. And it is Popcorn Lover's Day, so some of those might be popcorn buckets, right? There's your fifth, fifth one. Our fifth kernel of popcorn. Um, so she was able to cross that off her list. Thank heavens for that. Uh, this is a fun um, little story that, uh, you know, nobody wants to lose. Um, brick tossed through a glass door at a Youngstown police department. I mean, if you're going to commit a crime, go right to the police department to commit Cut the crime. Cut out the middleman. The entrance to the Youngstown Police Department became a crime scene on Wednesday. Someone tossed a half of half of a brick through the glass door shortly before noon. Police immediately arrested Clifton Jennings, saying he didn't even attempt to run, just stood there. Jennings told the police officer, I just want to go to jail. Maybe it's on his bucket list. Yeah, it's on his bucket list. Sources report that Jennings allegedly did the same thing about six months ago. There's got to be an easier way to commit a crime to go to jail. Well, the amenities that they're offering in jail these days kind of make it a tempting offer. Yeah. You get You you kind of want to commit it. Yeah. You get a a wool blanket. So do you think you could recognize the sound of a brick against glass? Oh, yeah. Okay, I've got a few sounds here. You tell me which one you think is the brick against the glass. Brick against glass. 
Okay, I'm not going to go with that one. I'm not thinking that is a brick against glass. That's I think a brick against a monster of some kind. Okay, here's sound number two. Okay, that was a brick. That was audio taken um, uh, from a slug that had a brick thrown at it. Okay, here's number three. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely the glass, and a brick was thrown through that glass. Well, there's one more sound. Okay. So just hold on. Okay. You're fired. Okay. That was apparently somebody tipping over a drink, uh, Donald Trump's Diet Coke, and he fired him. Wrong. Oh. Wrong. Okay. You're wrong. Was it the one before that? That's the slug audio. That's a monster. That's it. Wow. Got it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Hey, uh, last story for you uh, from Empty News. I didn't know we were going to have a quiz. Florida man who fought off an alligator with a putter gets a new set of golf clubs. 74-year-old or 75-year-old Florida man named Tony Arts made news recently when he used his Cleveland golf putter to fend off a 10-foot alligator as it uh, dragged him into a pond. It gra- the alligator grabbed his right foot. After poking the gator in the eye with his club, Arts walked away with only minor injuries after the attack. The folks at the Cleveland Golf heard about Arts' near-death experience and recently showed up at the club to present him with a new set of golf clubs. These custom clubs came complete with gator-etched into the wedges and uh, scored scoreboard noting um, and the scoreboard noting who won this round. I guess a picture of I guess um, he he's got the word gator etched into his clubs now. I love how they essentially just laughed it off like <laughs> you were almost devoured by an alligator on our property. You could have been shredded. Hey, let us give you some clubs. That's scary. I mean, the guy, the alligator had his ankle. All you need to do. I've watched gator hunters. I've watched it. They just have to roll. Once they start rolling, your ankle's downriver. But it's so unpleasant to be poked in the eye repeatedly. No, believe me. I know. Doesn't this remind you of gator ball, though? Yeah. I think I think it's gator ball is an invention that we made on the show that I think could change baseball. And as we leave you, we're going to give you a little taste of Gator Ball, right? Gator Ball. We'll be back, folks. We're talking families up next. Stick with us. Next spring on BYU Radio, what do you get when you take America's greatest pastime and add one of the most feared creatures on the planet? You get Gator Ball. Gator Ball is the same as baseball with just a few minor adjustments. Two teams of nine players come onto the field wearing uniforms that have been dipped overnight in chicken and fish chum. As the game commences, players need to make sure they're at the top of their game or else... If you hate long, drawn-out games, you'll love Gator Ball. Anytime a pitcher takes too long to throw 
the ball, or a coach calls for a review. And anytime there's a pickoff attempt, watch out for them Gators. Oh, man, these kids are taking way too long, man. Oh, look at that. And they're going to send out the Gators. You better watch out for that. You may try to steal third, but if you don't make it, the oh, Gator's going to steal your foot. Somebody shoot him! Man, that, that gator, he locked his foot. He got him out of hot here, man. And if the gator gets you, Great. the inning's over. Other exciting plays include the sacrifice fly, where the team offers up their injured or low-performing players. The double play, where the gators are given a chance to bite two players in one play. Or the walk-off home run, where any player who hits a home run is allowed to walk off the field and watch the remainder of the game from the safety of the dugout. Oh, man, that ball is gone. And he's, he, oh, he's gone. Oh, man, he ain't going to be no Gator Bowl tonight, man. Yeah. Gator Bowl. A game you can really sink your teeth into. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is uh, Heather Ann Johnson, Hadge, we call her. And Heather is a professor here at Brigham Young University, and she teaches, um, she teaches classes for, for basically how to create family a- uh, activities and events and, and how to get your family involved, get them more physical, get them outside, working out, being healthy. You can find out more about uh, her work by going to her website, um, familyvolley.com. You can also look up her book there, Family Fun Fridays, just giving you activities, tools, things you can do with the kidlets. Today, Heather's here to talk to us about how to help our children, you know, believe and know we love them. Because we may say it, but they don't believe it. It's true. It's true. Well, or they want to believe it, but unfortunately, we do a lot of things that negate those three words we just told them. Right. Right. Like, yeah, we ground them. Right. Well, <laughs> well, in consequences, we're not saying there, there can be consequences, bad, right. right? But at the same time, the, the old adage that actions speak louder than words really is true when it comes to our kids. You know, I can tell our, our children, I love you all day long, but if my actions show contrary, right. then it doesn't matter how many times I say it, they're not going to trust that. And so we have to be really careful with this. Uh, I know for me, I, I clearly have a weak spot when it comes to this topic. For me, it's bedtime. Yeah. Right? I get to the end of the day, and it doesn't matter how many families or couples I've worked with or what I've taught. I know the principles, but to be honest, when we hit bedtime, there are some days where I rush them. Yep. I don't care that they want to tell me a story. I tell them to pick the short book because I don't want to read the long one. Right. <laughs> and it's like, just get your pajamas on and get, get pray, going. pray, jammies, brush, get in. We're, yeah. Let's be done. Right. Yeah. And then it's really ironic because then I sit down as fast as I can and I give them a big hug and I say, I love you. And then I rush out the door. And I realize as I'm walking down the hall, well, wait, wait a second. Do they, <laughs> None of yeah. my actions, the last like eight and a half minutes, because I condensed it, show you that those words right. really, if I loved you, I would have listened when you said, hey, wait, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, could we read my favorite one? No, it's too long. Read the short one. So I wouldn't true. have handled it like that. So true. And, and yet it's ironic because so many of those situations, we follow up with those words. I love you. Really? You just seemed really impatient, really right. irritated, and really frustrated with me. So there's a couple of things or a couple other things we want to talk about today that, that negate 
those three words and make them really, you know, dismissible to our kids. Then act like it. That's right. What, like, That's, whenever I'd say I want to do something, well, then act like you want to do it. It's exactly right. Let, yeah. let me really see that this matters. And this concept is, is applicable not just as a parent, but really in any relationship, especially in a marriage, we run into the same thing, oh, right? Yeah. I, I can say to my husband that I love him, but if my actions aren't supportive and trustworthy and there's not the dedicate. Well, then it's, it's really gone. hard to believe. It's gone. It's totally gone. That's great. So, so you're saying we have to act what – I mean acting might be the best way to communicate it. Right. By, right. By our actions. Now, if, if we tangent a little bit, we've got to recognize that those actions are coming from how we actually view and feel about our children inside. Right. If I see them as an object, as an interference, as an irritation to all the other things I need to be doing, then naturally my actions are going to show them that. And it doesn't matter how many times I say I love you. So if we're getting down to the root of this, there has to be that core change in our hearts where we truly see them as, as people, little people who need our time and energy and attention and who have hopes and dreams and want to share stories, once we see them like that, then our actions will very easily follow suit. And we're showing them those things. So we do have to have a a heart shift, a heart change, because I can, again, I can do the right thing all the time with my kids. But if on the inside my heart isn't there, that is what they'll respond to. They respond to how I feel about them on the inside. So that has to change first. That's cool, yeah. we got to change that. So a couple areas where we can do better to kind of help the I love you really matter when we do say it is the first thing is we've got to make sure that our homes are very stable and secure. Yeah. Now, this is going to come from having routine, from having rituals, from having patterns of interaction. We want to create an environment where there's predictability. And the reason why is because predictability for children allows them to feel stable and secure. Once we put that in place, they're much more likely to be able to trust that what we're doing and saying is genuine. Right, right. And so we want to make a very conscious effort to do this. Now, one of the things we have to do is we've got to slow down then to eliminate some of those distractions. It's the same with that story with me at bedtime. I've got so many other distractions that are occupying my mind that really they just become a thing that has to be done. Yeah. Instead of a person that needs to be loved. Yeah, we think it is. We think of it as an as the as the chore, not the human. It's not exactly the child. Right. Almost like just our checklist again, right? As yeah. long as I check, hey, I got you in bed. We read a story. I kneeled down to say prayers. I, and we're done. When really we're not. Right. No. <laughs> and and really we didn't have anything behind that. So the problem with this is the instability starts to teach our children that love doesn't or doesn't have anything to do with trust. And that starts to become unsettling because they take those thoughts with them as they get older in their own relationships of love. When they think that the instability leads to lack of trust, then they have a lack of trust. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're going to go back to that. We're going to establish those routines. We're going to make sure that things are consistent. We're going to help them understand consequences before actions. We're really just going to put our energy and effort into being on their level and seeking to understand them. Mm. And I, they, but we have other routines. like. What's hard is when you're working long hours, you have an, your own change in your schedule, you're upset, you're stressed anyway, and then you have to do their routine. It's exactly right. And then you have to show them that you actually do love them right. and care. And so that's why – and there will be times and seasons when our lives are more – are consistently more busy than others. Yeah. 
But really, that's why we've got to look at our day and decide what can I eliminate because they are most important. Yeah, they're it. They're, they are it. And so we have to start weighing those things out a little bit, especially if we can't keep our cool when it comes to being with them. Mm. If we are so stressed out that we don't have the ability to compartmentalize and, and give them what they need with patience and love and trust and understanding, then we probably need to reconsider what we're juggling the rest of the day. Right, right. right? right. And that's hard to digest because it's like, well, I like these things or I want these things or I need these yeah. things, but we and want they're to all need good. our kids. They're right. all good. They're good things. It's just the great thing we're avoiding or not doing, spending the time on. Right. And so if that's the route we're going to take and we still are going to keep everything in place in our day, in our schedule, in our lives, then we have to come up with enough character to have the patience and the love and understanding to actually then be with them. Yeah, that's cool. To make things very yeah. stable. So another one, and again, this one's really straightforward, but we're going to start putting more energy and attention on our marriage. Right. The marriage relationship and the way we love our spouse shows our children how they should be loved. So if we're messing it up and giving them a bad example, then they naturally grow up with that really bad example, right? right? They learn about love by watching us love others besides them. And so we want to make sure that that marital relationship in front of them is filled with the right things. They're looking at how we handle conflict, how we express love, you know, the emotion, the physical. They're looking at all those things. And so if we don't have those things, you know, on point, we've taught them the wrong thing. And that's all of a sudden that's their model for the future of their relationship? It's exactly right. And they've seen, you know, one spouse take it and so that must be okay. It's no good this way, right? They need to see how we serve one another. Again, how we listen, how we communicate, how we resolve conflict. This shows them love. This shows them love. And when it's not there, these poor relationships, they start teaching our children that love instead of about selflessness is about blame and about hurt Hmm. and about impatience and about justification. And so now when they go into a relationship where they're trying to show someone love as a friend or in a relationship or in a marriage, they think that justification and blame and impatience are part of love. Yeah, right. And they're not. That's that's not part of love. That's not true love. And so our our example to them, first and foremost, will set them up to essentially succeed or fail in a lot of ways when it comes to, to Boy, love. Yeah, right? you're modeling love through your marriage. That's exactly right. That's cool. And And even if your marriage is, you know, there's been a divorce, things like that, we're still modeling it in how we handle an ex-spouse. That's right. In how we handle any sort of relationship, it's still the same thing. But they're looking at us going, oh, well, she does it like that? Okay, well, is that how you – yeah. This is my mom. That's how she does it or my dad. And so regardless of what that relationship looks like, it's still our responsibility, even if there is a divorce, to be kind, to not blame, to not right. justify, to have patience. It doesn't change anything. Stephen Covey taught uh, how you how you treat the most difficult person in your life or the most difficult child mm-hmm. t- shows everybody how you could eventually treat them. So even how you treat your ex right. could show and model for your children. If you cross me – you could get this same treatment. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. And why would they think that they'd be exempt? They wouldn't. Right, no. We, we inherently feel that way. And we feel that way in our own – I mean, as adults, we know that. Yeah. We can look at other yeah. people and think, ugh, if that's how you handle that, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> that <right?"> got ugly. <laughs> that got really <laughs> ugly. And so we, we have to recognize they are constantly watching and they're taking note and they're taking note of the feelings even before they're taking note of, of the tangible understanding. No, absolutely. Uh, let's take a break, Heather. We're speaking with Heather Johnson. She's a professor here at Brigham Young University and uh, is here to teach us the principles behind successful families and the importance of families spending time together. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue how to teach our kids we truly love them 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio, Heather Johnson's with us. She's teaching us how to uh, be more successful with our families today, especially how to make sure that we're actually showing love through our parenting actions, not just trying to get our kids to believe it because we said it. I love you. Go to bed. <laughs> right? So uh, you've taught us we, we need to make, we need to, you know, get into rituals and routines in our lives, put our kids first in those routines and rituals. You also talked about marriage, the importance of marriage being a model for how we love. Absolutely. Right? Those relationships, they learn about love by watching us love or not love yeah. other people. Right? Right. right. And, and with this one, too, like you said, uh, when you used Covey's information, it really comes back to our enemies and the people that we love. They they learn from that. They learn and, how to And the kids that. are always watching. They're always watching, right? And it's a lot easier for them to learn uh, or see, and then they tend to pattern the negative because that's kind of that easier. I don't have to have self-discipline. I don't have to have character. I right. don't have to have patience. Right. And the funny thing is when you start to make those missteps, then all of a sudden you see you know, your oldest treating the youngest the same way you just are now treating people. Exactly. And you kind of have to suck it up and go, okay, that this is not okay. I... I've got to change the way I model this. So we've got a stable and secure home. We're making sure that our marriage or our love relationships are patterning healthy love relationships. The next thing we're going to do, and this is, again, one we hear all the time, but we can't get around it, is we must spend time with them if we want the three words of I love you to actually mean anything to our children. There is no substitute. No, time. You got to be there. There's no substitute. Uh, we can get them the best friends and the best this and the best. But if we're not making time to be down on the ground and be with them or drive in the car or see their events or do those things, we run into a lot of trouble. Oh, and see, you can. There's so many people that are like, well, I don't I can't do it all. But you, you can't. I, I'm a big believer. You can't have it all. You you can't. You have to make those decisions and you have to choose. And that's why, you know, all of a sudden as parents, we think, well, let's get them in 800 different activities. And now I have four kids and they can do it all. Right. But that's funny because I can't support any of you in any of them. I can't come watch anybody. I barely get you where you need to go. And so we have to take a step back and decide, well, it might be more important or beneficial if everybody's in one thing. Yeah. And I get to support you in that one thing and support all of you. Uh, a family that I just finished working with, it was so interesting as I was talking to their son and they gave me permission to kind of use the experience. He uh, was mentioning that he was having trouble with his parents and as we started talking it through and he got emotional and he said that he'd been on an athletic team and he said the season just ended and my parents didn't come to one single Mm. game, not one. And it was funny because when we rehashed and I talked to his parents, you know, one, they, they knew inside their heart that they'd made the wrong choice in not going to support. But two, again, it was the justification of, well, I was tired. They're always at night. Well, there's yeah. other kids. Well, there's this where, you know, and when it's like, well, should we split up? Well, then we never get to see. Right. I mean, we really can come up with all that that we want. But we still have to take a step back and say, but wait a second, do I want my child to feel my love and support? And if I do, this is how he feels it. I need to find a way to get there right. and to do that. So we've got to decide what it is we want to emphasize and how we're going to spend time. Now, the cool thing about this, too, is that each child spends time with us and feels the love through time differently. Yeah. 
Uh, Our son needs time from me listening. He needs listening time. Our daughter needs active time from me. She needs me to go shoot hoops. She needs me to run around in the backyard and jump on the trampoline. That's what she needs from me. Right. That's not what our son is looking for. His time needs to be filled with, ironically enough, me hearing all about practice and all about his day and how his test went. And that's what he needs. What if they just need money? Because that's – I've got one that, well, that seems to be all he needs. Well, money and time, they're different. <laughs> okay, so we're yeah. okay here, yeah, right? We're good. Yeah. <laughs> so give him more time and you won't need more as much right, money. Right, right. Right? Maybe we can – Maybe that'll – Maybe it. you can work him out of it yeah. by spending more time it's with true. him. It's true. If I was with him, then I'd pay anyway. Right. Well, <laughs> well, or need, maybe needs would be felt or filled and so he's like, okay, never mind. I don't yeah. actually need We're good. Money. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start spending the time. We're going to make that a priority. Otherwise, again, remember, this teaches children that love doesn't take sacrifice. That's what time is. It's sacrifice. Totally. And so the message they get is, yeah, I can say I love you, but I actually don't because I'm not willing to sacrifice for you. Love is all about sacrifice. And so we want to bring it back so that they understand those things. That's great. Okay, the next one is, and we might not think it fits, but it has a huge effect on our children's ability to trust that we really love them. And that is we have to stop complaining. Oh, yeah. We've got to stop complaining. Now, just to preface, it doesn't mean that we're saying being a parent or being in a family is not hard. It is hard. Being home, taking care of things, I mean, even... It's hard. It's a juggle. There's a lot to it. But when we're constantly complaining about it, our children hear that as we're complaining about them. Yeah, they're the problem. It's exactly right. If I complain about the laundry, our children are smart. They know, okay, that's funny. My clothes are actually in the laundry. And if I'm complaining about the dishes, they ate off those same dishes. (laughs) Right. So it doesn't matter what we're complaining about. They tie it back to complaining about them, that they're irritating, that it bugs you that you have to take care of them, that it's frustrating that you have to make them dinner or drive them around. You know, if I'm constantly saying, I can't believe I have to drive you again. Well, okay. I just told them I don't really love you because one, I won't sacrifice and two, you're just irritated. Right. I don't want to drive you anymore. When we had you, I wasn't thinking about (laughs) driving you around everywhere. It's exactly right. Right. And so this message of love that they receive is really skewed and it it creates a, a, a tricky trap for them because here we are with our behavior doing the right thing, serving, but because our hearts are in the wrong place, mm. that's the message they hear. But now it's conflicted. Now we've taught them, okay, do the right thing, but you can still think the wrong way. Right. And that's not okay. Mm. Also, it doesn't give them the tools they need to work through the hard things and make the sacrifice of love when it's their One day they're going to be doing that laundry and driving that carpool and watching those sporting events. We've got to set them up so they know how to do those things with the right spirit in their heart, right? The hope then is that this really becomes a joy, that we are actually humbled by the opportunity to serve and be with them instead of irritated because we have to take care of them. Absolutely. We've got to switch that, right? So we have to stop complaining. We've got to stop. It doesn't mean in our heads we might still not like laundry. I well, who I don't, does? I don't like it. Yeah. But the fact that I know it helps them feel better and that they have clean clothes that make mm-hmm. them feel safe, and that's has, that has to govern my words. Well, and, and the more time you're spending with them too, they would also learn to do their laundry. They would learn to you know, think ahead to get places with their friends when their friend next door got a ride to the exact same place. That's exactly right. So it's – part of this is I think we, we, we kind of end up being angry at ourselves because – I haven't trained them very well. I haven't taught them very well. 
And now I compensate by always having to drive them. Right. And having and to I'm do mad. those things. It's exactly right. Yeah. And then we blame ourselves. So we can use them as those teaching situations. It's also a really great place to teach them that first and foremost, if you want to increase love for someone, you serve them. And it doesn't matter. That's not coming from any standpoint except a truth standpoint. Yeah. If you want to soften your heart towards someone, serve them. Serve them. And the more we do that for our children with the right attitude, the more they feel that. Right? Beautiful, Heather. So should we throw one more yeah, in? Yeah, give us our last okay. one. We got about 30, 30 seconds. One more is we are going to stop criticizing other people. Yeah. Okay. Now – that doesn't even mean our family. If we are someone who's constantly critical, look at the neighbors. I can't <sighs> believe they're – look at this. I can't believe she did that. Listen to what was said today. Right. They start to internalize that and really the thought starts to happen in their mind that if mom talks that way about other people, mm-hmm. what's she saying about me when I'm not around, right? <laughs> and they internalize that and it's very hard because the thought is, well, man, I wonder what she says about me. Oh, I love you. Have a good day. Yeah. Okay, I don't really believe that because I'm going to get out of the car and who knows what you're going to say to me about me to someone else. Right. So we've got to be very careful with the way we judge and criticize others. And the interesting thing is that that benefits us oh, as yeah. individuals, let alone a child's ability to truly believe that when we say I love you, we really mean it. That's so we've got so to stop good. criticizing. Stop criticizing. And really yep. – and just – Love. It's all, this sounds like it's more just about love. Model love, be love, to schedule love, have time. Yeah. And love ourselves too. You know, yeah. self-love is the same thing. If we can't love ourselves, they have a hard time believing we can love them. Yeah, and why should they love themselves? Right, right. Mom doesn't so, love herself. I know. So it's about more than the words. The words matter, but all, everything else matters too. Yeah, it always yep. seems to be that way, Yeah, Heather. darn it. <laughs> well done. Heather Johnson's her name. Go to her website, uh, familyvolley.com. Great resource uh, for all of us. Also, check out our book, Family Fun Fridays. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Wrapping it up. Back everybody to the Matt Townsend show. That's the famous uh, sweet bread of mine. Uh, knives and knives and petunias, the name of the band. It's a great song about bagels. I thought it was a perfect song to to use to take it down to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation today. Spencer and Jason, hello, gentlemen. Carbalicious. What in the world is this that we're listening to? Is this is about bagels. It's about bagels. There was a story. You didn't hear the story. There Apparently was, not. There was a story of uh, some, uh, I think it was a public transportation, like on a train, and these these girls, these women were putting bagels, uh, pieces of bagel on a man's head. And then they were... Past the time? Yeah, just to bug him, I guess, to irritate him. And eventually it got ugly, and then oh, well, they, yeah. were, they were turned in and uh, charged with, you know, disorderly distribution of bread. Disorderly distribution of... Bagelry. Yeah, of round bread. Yeah. So uh, it just so armed, happens. Armed bagelry. <laughs> armed bagelry. I could go for a bagel right now, like a blueberry bagel, Who could, maybe a cinnamon bagel. Do you know what today's day? We are celebrating uh, International Meatball Day. 
Ooh. after International Women's Day yesterday. Yeah. And it's it's Popcorn Lovers Day and it's national oh sorry, national, not international. National. Not oh you all right, Jeff? Jeff just hurt himself. Uh National Meatball Day. Meatballs, by the way, um in New York there's a restaurant with fifty four different kinds of meatballs. Wow. You got your big ones, you got your small ones, you get your spicy ones. Yeah. We eat a lot of meatballs at the Shepherd House. Do you? We do, yes. Do you, do you guys eat a lot of shepherd's pie? You know what? Uh, ironically enough, uh, no. <laughs> you don't. Um, I am probably the only one in the uh, in the house that that would eat it. But I don't know if it's like the uh, the how it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. Because it's I think not like the original, the original one's right. got like lamb or uh-huh. something in yeah. it. Yeah, ours has just got like hamburger and ah. stuff. Hamburger, instant mashed potatoes, green beans, mm. and brown gravy. Oh, heaven. I mean, it's it's comfort food at its finest. Oh yeah, oh, but yeah. but like nobody else really will eat it but no. me, so we don't really eat it a lot. These kids nowadays, they don't know good food. You know, they don't know what meatloaf's really like. Oh man, oh. they're missing <clears throat> out, right? Meatloaf. Hey, um, by the way, great band too, isn't he a singer? Meatloaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's like in his seventies now. Yeah. <laughs> I watched an interview with him uh, with Dan Rather on the big interview. Yeah, how'd that go? Uh, it was uh, it was interesting. What's He's the... a very interesting guy. Oh yeah, very theatrical. If you know anything about Meatloaf, I've, I, I, I'm not familiar with uh, old Meatloaf. <laughs> I just like the 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 old the newer meat. The, what the are young, we talking about? The young and, and people call people. By the way, call him Meat. Oh, do they? That's like that's like his name is meat. Well, if you had to go, if you had to choose meat or loaf, I would definitely go with meat. Yeah, I'm certainly going with meat. <laughs> hey, here's a question for you, boys. This is a sports question. Sports question: uh, Is Tony Romo going to go to the Broncos or what? No, but he should. He should go to the. He should go to my Chiefs. Is where he should go to. We need a quarterback that can actually throw down the field. But... You, oh, that, that's but that means Alex Smith would have to. Oh, is that, is that would that mean that he would be gone? No, oh, Jason, are you taking this out on Alex Smith because of his alma mater? It, that's part of it. I'm not going to lie, but the guy literally cannot throw a pass beyond ten yards. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, Tony Romo is a Dallas Cowboy, right? Like, but Dak Prescott. Is making like six hundred thousand dollars, and he played so well last right. year. You've got to make this move. It's sad to see Romo go, but he's got to go. And the Broncos make a ton of sense, right? But you don't think he's going to go? Well, I don't think he's going to go because it makes too much sense. Ah. And what I've come to learn in the world of the NFL, generally things that make the most yeah. sense right. don't end up happening. So he'll probably go to the Bills. Hey. I think he'll go somewhere. I I would love for him to go to the Broncos. It makes perfect sense. Don't I just come to expect yes. that it won't happen. Don't right. sleep on the Texans. Even though they just, and I'm completely blanking on his name now. Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler, thank you. Even though they gave him such a huge contract right. last offseason, he did not play well. I would not be surprised to see Romo stay in the state of Texas and go to the Texans. Because, yeah, that's money in state. That would be huge. I mean, he's, he's still a name. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that would not surprise me at all if he ended up going to the Texans. And then he'll go back to the Broncos and be the GM or whatever someday. You talking about Romo? Yeah, going back to the Cowboys. I mean, sorry, the, yeah, the Cowboys. Oh, I don't dude, think Jerry I, Jones is going to let that go. Yeah, he is the owner and everything else. No, as I, the owner, head coach, GM. Well, you know, Jerry's getting old. 
Jerry's a character. He won't be around forever. Yeah. No. But, no. Uh, hey, Tony he's, Romo is a Dallas Cowboy. He's not immortal. Hey, um, that we're aware of. Question for you. You guys still doing your show today? You going to throw that in there today? We sure are. What's on your show? Oh, you know, just a uh, little bit of everything, including spring football. <gasps> you might be thinking, okay, how much does spring football really matter right now? And it's been a little bit lost under the roller coaster of BYU basketball. Right. But now it's coming to the forefront, and you'll feel even more so inclined to pay attention after you hear what we're going to talk about today, dealing with coaching level position changes and why it matters way more than you think. Really? Yes. Yes. This is exciting. Plus, assistant head coach yes. Ed Lamb on the number one priority for BYU in spring football. Yes. And his, dude, he, you've never experienced Ed Lamb like this. And, and really? let me tell you, let me tell you, the little tease. Okay. That he tells a story about Ty Detmer that you're not going to want to miss. <laughs> I promise. Really? I promise you, I promise all of the BYU fans listening, you are not going to want to miss this story about Ty Detmer. <laughs> yeah, okay, see? About that. Also, uh, a freshman phenom gymnast named Shannon Hortman that just keeps winning everything, uh, she's going to join us in Studio B. That's cool. Okay, of course. A great show, of course, and it's only four and a half minutes away. Yes. Oh, I never told you about the children's oh. clothing, Matt. <sighs> forgot to bring it just, up. Just marinate on this. Yes. At what age does it become not cute for a little person to run around the house with tube socks up to their knees and underwear? Okay. Okay. That's true. At okay. What, how okay. long can you do that? Okay. Tube socks and underwear. We will, uh, we, this, <laughs> we, so far we're saying 15. <laughs> bring it down a little bit. Uh, 12. So, no. so early just, 40. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So early okay. 40s is creepy. We'll talk about <laughs> yeah, it tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a 23-year-old son that still does that. Okay, that's creepy. All right, we'll talk about it tomorrow for sure. Thanks, hey, guys. Bye. Have a great show. Knock them dead. Boy, that put an image in my head. Like a 40-something-year-old kid living in the basement comes up in his undies with his socks up to his knees. Gerald, go back to bed. <laughs> oh, brother. So crazy. I don't know why I've got – I just want – now I want shepherd's pie. Really? I, when, I, when I start the show hungry, it creates a problem. Well, I, we don't have any of that here, but uh, you want some Skittles? Oh, yeah, for sure. We'll break out the Skittles. That apparently you left here for me? Maybe. Possibly. Wrong. It's a possibility. Hey, I told you earlier we would be talking about carjacking. Um, if you're going to carjack or steal a car – Please make sure that it's not a stick shift unless you know how to drive a stick shift car. Cleveland police say an 18-year-old serial carjacker was arrested after his accomplice couldn't drive a stick shift. Even with some coaching from the victim, police say Damari Wayne and 17-year-old boy attempted to steal a 23-year-old man's car on February 21st. The younger teen got into the driver's seat but was unable to operate the vehicle. That's when police say the duo turned the gun on their victim while he tried to explain how to use the gears. How's this stick thing work? The duo eventually got frustrated, ran off with the man's cell phone, which police used to pinpoint their location. Uh, let's just say two criminals that uh, obviously because of their youth, they didn't understand technology apparently enough or and or they didn't understand just old, old, old technology. So the owner was coaching them how to drive his stick shift yeah. car when he 
when yeah. they were held at You see that point. third pedal? You'll have to push that in when you want to shift the gears. You know what's worse than this, though? What? Serial jackers. The people that will steal your cereal. Does that happen? It's a thing. Is that Especially in college. Never heard of that. Serial jackers. Watch out for it. Hey, a teen. This is our hero story of the day. A teen who walked two hours to work surprised by a cop who buys him a bike. Listen to this. A teenager from Vallejo, California, was surprised with a bicycle from police officers after they learned he walked about two hours to and from work. Jordan Duncan had been walking to work since May. His car broke down. He did not want to ask people for rides. I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to people, so I take the initiative to handle it myself and get where I need to get to. He, uh, he said, Duncan estimated that the walk is about a two-hour commute each way on foot. He goes up and down hills on city streets to avoid the highway. It's four hours altogether. He said, I, I got used to the walk. It's not a hard walk. On September 17th, Duncan had finished his shift and uh, the shift at night and began walking home when he spotted a police corporal, Kurt Keffer. Keffer offered Duncan a ride home, and the two got to know each other. Keffer talked about life as an officer, and Duncan shared his aspirations to be an officer with the California Highway Patrol. And that's when the police got involved. We talked as a union, and the board unanimously approved it. We started the process of purchasing the bike. Sergeant James Laughter, president of the police association, said. Anyway, they ended up getting the boy a bike. Duncan also received a helmet and a light for his bike, free tune-ups. He got it all. There's not a lot of 18-year-olds out there that have this dedication uh, and to be this kind of a kid. So to the police department, to the highway patrol there in California, and to this wonderful Jordan Duncan, good job, my friend. Congratulations. You're the hero of the day. And that's the show. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live stronger and live healthier lives. We'll talk again tomorrow.